Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. My friends, we do this program to give you the tools you need to make it through this crazy thing called life. So instead of just telling you a bunch of stories, giving you a bunch of news, we're going to actually actually give you tools to help you figure out what you need to do with all this information. Welcome to the program. Another day. Another dollar. Have you guys got your dollar yet? We're uh, we're here to make our dollar. James, have you been given your dollar? I've not been given my dollar yet. Well, the day's not over. You have to earn your dollar, James. Nothing's free here in the world. Welcome to the program. Now, here is the deal. Today, great show. We're going to be talking about religion and the presidency. Does it matter about your president if he's a Christian or not? Do you care? There's always a lot of hubbub. Is Barack Obama a Christian? Is Mitt Romney a Mormon? Does it matter? Do you even know what religion Bill Clinton um, follows or what's his religious tradition? What would uh, Hillary Clinton's be? Do you know? Do you even know? Do you even care? I looked it up. Uh, Hillary's? Yes. What? I believe it's Methodist. Methodist. I believe you're right. Bing! But she says she doesn't wear it on her sleeve so you don't hear about it. Yeah. It's not something she talks about, not something she puts out there. Well, until she goes to some meeting where there's it's a religious group, then she'll wear it on her sleeve. Well, of course. There's just context like, there. Just like when – I love it when all of these politicians all of a sudden have a southern accent. Yes. Every time they're in the south. Or they talk, you know, like they're from the city. Anyway. Religion, does it really matter to you? Think about it. Can your president, if your president was Jewish, would that matter to you? If your president was Muslim, would that matter? Could a Muslim get the presidency of the United States? What do you think? We'll be talking about it with a professor that studied it and written the book on it. And uh, he'll be joining us a little bit later as well. Um, anyway, that that's a it's a big deal because – you think about like the conservatives, the GOPs, they seem to always be trying to sway the, the religious. And it makes you wonder, so what? I guess the liberals, none of them are religious. Yes, they're godless, godless people. Those godless, Those dark, dark people. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? But uh, something as subtle as that, we'll be getting uh, – remember, it's one of the reasons we uh, actually came to America. Religious freedom. So I'm sure that there's a, a pretty basic core that. Well, that and, you know, getting out of jail. and Yeah, that all other stuff. It was either jail or go to the colonies. So there Dude, was some of that. Go to the colonies. Any headlines going on? The uh, head of the DEA is going to retire. Yeah. I, she chose retire? retirement or get fired. Okay, well, we'll retirement it. or get fired. So yeah. she's going to retire. Yeah, I, I, I'd retire. The uh, DEA. She, uh, her name is uh, Michelle Leinart. She had served as the helm of the DEA since 2007. They've come under heavy criticism on Capitol Hill recently. 
An inspector general report found uh, a series of episodes in which agents were found to have incidents of misconduct paid for by tax dollars and Colombian drug cartels. And what's the big deal? What's the big deal? We're just trying to arrest these guys. Can't they give us some money too? (laughs) So. Oh, boy. But you know what? That's noble, I guess. I mean, you're moving on. Cleaning house. Yeah. Forced out. She's forced out. I mean, I don't know what's so noble about it. No, it's noble. I mean, she could have fought it and. No. She could have called the cartel. The the other thing is the DEA is trying to, you know, rein in uh, marijuana, illegal marijuana sales. And the Obama administration has sort of a feeling of like, is it really that big a deal? Dude. So they're kind of at odds there. Come on, dude. And so they they haven't had they they won't publicly give confidence, give you know give her the the word the voice of confidence. So yeah. they uh, decided that's the best course of action is to replace her. <sighs> Fun stuff. She's done. I mean, think about it this way: she's probably she's retired. She can go have a second career. Well, yeah, but uh, they they pointed out she's the first woman to uh advance or to go to the get to this level in the DEA busted out and be able to kind of break through some of those gender mm-hmm. norms that are they're kind of built in when you get to a a bureaucracy type of thing. And so she was able to be kind of a trailblazer and then now she has to do the old fall on your sword thing and launch out she goes. So well, good luck to her. New study at the University of Kansas demonstrates that the individuals most likely to vote in elections aren't worried about policy so much as they are invested in their team winning. Mm. So it's kind of like they this is the new team sport, politics. Yes. Researchers argue that the current polarized political climate, voters have become more like obsessed sports fans and informed citizens. For, and this is a quote, for too many of them, the study says it's not high-minded, good government, issue-based goals. It's I hate the other party. I'm going to go out and we're going to beat them. But, you know, you see that. It's like the, you know, the, the rallies are more like pep rallies. Yes. You, you, like you need cheerleaders and you even have – you don't have pom-poms. You have signs and you yeah. have your colors, your it, team it, colors. Yeah. It looks like a – a rally to, you know, that you get your team riled up on Friday for Saturday's game more than we're trying to, you know, achieve this political yeah. issue and make what's, it better for everyone. Yeah, what's best for America? Eh. It even goes so far as to talk about you can cheat. We're okay with cheating as long as we win too. So well, voter right. voter suppression or whatever sort of tactics you want to take, yeah. as long as we win, it justifies the bad Well, behavior. do you remember Harry Reid came out admitting that he lied about uh, Mitt Romney's – the statement about Mitt Romney's taxes or yes. whatever? Um, yeah. And he goes, did he win? I guess it's fine. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm like, well. Isn't that interesting? But yeah. maybe the, that's... En- the ends can't justify the means. So think of the so. biggest rivalry you know in sports in your, in your state. Every state has kind of their rivalry. That's the Republican-Democratic Party. It doesn't matter. Win at all costs. Hmm. That's interesting. We've got to talk more about that. We're going to work get, on finding a, these let's people. Let's get an expert on that. Mm. Uh, a 93-year-old former Nazi SS guard known yeah. as the bookkeeper of Auschwitz has ad- admitted he is morally guilty and will face trial next year on 300,000 charges of complicity to murder in Germany. How, how old is he? 93. Yeah. That's, I mean, good. That's, I mean, a he day is, late, a dollar short. Now, but. he has spoken openly in interviews about his time as an SS guard in Hitler's death camp. Um, in Poland, but he insisted he only witnessed atrocities and did mm-hmm. not commit any crimes, describing his role as counting money confiscated from new arrivals. Yeah. So he didn't kill anybody, but he was there. He was complicit. Now, they tried to go after him in 1980 
on similar charges, but they couldn't stick because he wasn't involved in the killings. Yeah, yeah. Now they've changed sort he of He was the, the accountant. He's the accountant. They've changed some of the statutes, and so he's an accessory to 300,000 murders. Oh, my heavens. So, oh, see, and, this is the old deathbed confession. And he's 93 years old. Yeah. And it was interesting. I'm reading the articles on, in the, on the, the BBC website, and right at the top was a 2005 documentary that he's talking about what he did. <laughs> I'm like, this is odd. But yeah. he's not denying it. He's just saying that what you're charging me with isn't, isn't fair. It's not legal. So they're trying to decide. He goes, I have moral guilt. Oh, he does. He feels but, moral. He feels oh, bad. He's not like celebrating mm-hmm. what he did. He has moral guilt, but he's saying he's not legally guilty. Well, honestly, and how many of the people that have been involved just disappear and don't hear about yes. So, I mean, at least he's taking it on, I guess. I mean, he's, well, he's clearing. He's, he's just, what are they going to do? It's sad. He again? walks into the courtroom with a walker. And yeah. takes two steps and shuffles over to his chair, and then they come after him for murder charges. And you're like, well, fifteen years he could get, fifteen years to life for yeah. the the charges of it. I mean, he's not going to last fifteen years. <laughs> but yeah. those, I mean, those are the hardest fifteen years of your life, I guess. That's uh, former Governor George, or Florida Governor Jeb Bush said in a radio interview on Tuesday that he supports President Obama's decision to continue the National Security Agency's metadata collection program. He, he's like, get more data. We're good with that. Bush gave the president credit for sticking with NSA's bulk collection of phone calls uh, and, and other metadata, a move that he said has led to the agency being enhanced. Bush's position on the metadata program puts him at odds, most notably with Senator Rand Paul, who uh, announced his presidential candidacy, who also is a strong candidate or critic of the NSA, and that he would abolish it if he was elected. So, again— uh. Republican candidate possibly agreeing with yeah. President Obama. How do you abolish know. something that you don't even know what they do? Well, we know. Do you? Yeah. They listen and record things. And Yeah, but what else do they do? Well. Like, don't you wonder, like, how many things they found out that, like, you heard about there was a new, in was it in Alabama? No, no. There was a new, oh, in France. Uh, they, they, they stopped a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. NSA is probably out stopping a lot of stuff that you don't know they're stopping. Hopefully. I, I would we just hope, think they're all just <laughs> – I would hope as they invade everyone's privacy that it's for some good. Yeah. It's like we think that there's like 500 people just sitting there listening to our phone calls. If, if they're doing it and getting nothing out of it, it's kind of a waste of all what the money. a waste of eavesdropping. What they need is just, you know, that old lady next door that used to listen in on every conversation. Hey, folks, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Gary Smith. Um, Gary Smith is the author of the book Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of the American Presidents. Does it really matter uh, if your president is religious or not? We're going to be getting into that as well as hearing some stories from some of the past presidents um, and uh, understanding a little bit better how religion influenced their decisions This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, folks, how much does it matter to you about the the religious beliefs, the attitudes, the just faith of your president. Does it is it a big deal for you? 
You know, in the wake of every presidential campaign, policies are debated, and those opinions are spread across the nation on in every news outlet. Each race also brings a public concern of moral values. Voters question the integrity of the candidates and often then judge um, judge those candidates based on their religion. With us today, we have Dr. Gary Smith, author of the new book, Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents. He's here to help us understand the impact religion has played on the presidency. Again, Dr. Gary Smith, welcome to the show. Good morning, Matt. Great to have you. What, a, what an interesting subject. Now, you've written three or four books, right, on religion and, and, uh, and, and presidents. Um, what, what's, what's your big takeaway? Do... do does a president's religion matter to the people? Absolutely. There's all kinds of polling data that would indicate that, uh, uh, as well as impressionistic uh, information that one could provide. But poll after poll, Americans have said that they want presidents who have a strong moral core, a strong moral center. They are concerned about people who have religious convictions because they believe that that will help them make better decisions, recognizing that presidents uh, have incredibly difficult and challenging jobs and tough decisions to make. They like uh, people who are going to look beyond their cabinet and beyond Congress to a higher power, God, in in making their decisions. So Mm. there's all kinds of evidence that would validate that claim. And you, uh, do, do you sense it's a prerequisite? Uh, can you, could you see a day where uh, somebody that doesn't believe in God or an atheist is is going to be the president? Uh, that day may be coming. Uh, in some ways, I would think that would be, a, a, in some senses, a sad day for America, because it might indicate that our, our values had shifted and we had become less Christian in our nation. But right now, the polling data indicates that a high percentage of Americans, more than 50 percent in many polls, say they wouldn't vote for an atheist for president. And that's higher than people who say that they wouldn't vote for someone because of their marital infidelity or their pot smoking or their age or a number of other considerations. Well, it's it's such an interesting, I guess, um, paradox or uh, because they, they are religious. They espouse their faith and their belief in God. And then, you know, so many of them, we, we hear about issues or scandals or gates as we, as we now hear. So, I mean, I guess it's just part of being human, and yet we want to be faithful, moral people, and yet we're human. Well, absolutely. Um, none of us are saints, and certainly our presidents haven't been saints, and they've had their share of moral flaws and failings. But one of the things I deal with in, in my books in particular is the impact of a president's faith on public policy, which has rarely been noted before. Hmm. And I give examples uh, it, for 22 presidents from two to five examples of how their faith has impacted particular policies that, that they have uh, advocated for and in many cases implemented during their administrations. Oh, yeah. And many more examples could be given, but you know, space is limited. Well, yeah, it's, it, it's true, though, isn't it? I mean, even uh, seven years ago, I think, I don't know, or so Hillary Clinton was talking about uh, the gay marriage issue and how she's a, a major advocate of traditional marriage and believes to the core her very foundational beliefs of life are about that. And then it, it that shifted a little bit. But even this whole issue about marriage, about, um, I guess, drugs historically, all of these issues, I guess, 
can be tied to some religious values. Well, absolutely. Presidents' faith have impacted uh, foreign policy issues as well as domestic ones. They've impacted policies pertaining to many different things across the board, whether we're talking about religious liberty, separation of church and state, the abolition of slavery, uh, relationships with Israel, uh, Mm. the list goes on and on, world peace, uh, poverty alleviation. There are many, many examples of how faith has shaped the president's worldviews and therefore their actions. Uh, Again, we're talking with Dr. Uh, Gary Scott Smith, and he has a Ph.D. in American history from Johns Hopkins and is the author of multiple books. The one we're talking about today, Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of the American Presidents. Teach us some of the things. In that book, I know you go into a variety, a list of presidents, um, and you just teach us how faith impacted them or religion impacted them. What are, what are some great examples that uh, kind of stand out for you as the author of that book? Well, sure. And I can – I profiled 22 different presidents over the course of my books. And again, I provide examples for every one of them, but just to pick a few. Yeah. Uh, John Quincy Adams, who was president in the uh, late 1820s, was very strongly affected by his faith. He was uh, vice president for the American Bible Society, an organization that still exists with us. He wrote religious poetry. He had uh, devotions of an hour or two hours a day, read the Bible in numerous languages in which he was fluent. And and in terms of his own uh, policies, he was concerned about the development of the, the new country, and so he used passages from the book of Genesis, the so-called cultural mandate, huh. to argue that we needed to fund more roads and canals and educational institutions. And his faith also impacted how he related to other nations. Uh, we could flash forward to the end of the 19th century and look at William McKinley, a very devout Methodist whose faith uh, had a big impact on how he saw the Cubans being oppressed and mistreated by the Spanish. and the United States, of course, got involved in the Spanish-American War and then had to decide what to do with the Philippines. And mm. McKinley, McKinley famously said that his faith led him to decide that you couldn't just abandon the people of the Philippines. You couldn't let Japan or Germany or some other country take them over. We had to step in and, for humanitarian reasons, uh, try to improve conditions in that country. Now, that turned out to be a very controversial decision, but he believed that his faith inspired him to do it. Mm. Uh, We could look at Herbert Hoover and his attempt to reform prisons. We could look at Harry Truman and most of his successors and how they viewed the Cold War, Uh, Eisenhower all the way up to to Reagan in terms of seeing it as a moral battle between uh, God-fearing and God-hating nations. Yeah. So, again, I could give lots of other examples, but those are a few that stand out. And and they go – I mean, this goes back to George Washington. You You wrote a book about George Washington, right? Well, I talked about him in, in another book that I wrote, and, and I argued that, yes, it goes all the way back to him. He famously said in his farewell address that a republic is only going to succeed if its people are moral, and they're not likely to be moral unless they're grounded in religious convictions and faith. Hmm. Uh, he spoke repeatedly about God's providence, more than 200 references to God's providence. And in the early republic, he promoted the uh, freedom of religion for Catholics and, and Jews, who were small groups in our nation at that time. Hmm. I mean, it's it's such an interesting thing because there, there's also, especially I guess in the media, there's um, 
there's such a, I don't know, kind of a, a backlash almost of being too religious or too preachy or too, uh, I guess, I don't know, connected and and driven by your faith. We saw with Mitt Romney, his faith, his his religious beliefs were, you know, turned up and over and front sideways every way you could turn them. Um, what, what do you think, what's the negative impact? Have you seen uh, religion play a negative role for a president? Well, w- with regard to their personal lives, no. I think that in every case I've studied, their faith has been enriching. It has given them greater courage, uh, comfort, consolation, uh, encouragement in the midst of trying circumstances. Many of them have said that their faith deepened while they were president, that they prayed more while they were president, they, they were more regular in their church attendance while they were president, that they sought more spiritual counsel and relationship with religious leaders hmm. while they were president. So on a personal level, I would say no. Where it becomes debatable is on a policy level, and a lot of that, of course, has to do with how one views the policies that presidents advocate. And so if a president is advocating a policy that you think is wrong and, and hurtful to the nation, and he grounds it in his religious convictions, then you're going to be critical and skeptical toward those religious convictions. So if you're on the political left, you're not going to like certain things that George W. Bush did in the name of his faith. If you're on the political right, you're not going to like things that Barack Obama has connected to his faith. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Uh, um, it's a part of us. It's a it's a part of who we are, and that that actually is very interesting too. To think that the president might turn even more uh, toward their faith or their beliefs, their religious beliefs, because the job is such a it's such a difficult and constantly uh, impacting job. We're going to take a break. We're talking right now with Dr. Gary Smith, the author of the book Religion in the Oval Office. The Religious Lives of the American Presidents. We'll take a break when we come back, continue the discussion, and uh, find out even more about uh, the impact of religion and, uh, and even just, you know, electability. Religiosity and electability, they must go hand in hand in some way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Right now, we're talking about religion and uh, its impact on the Oval Office. Does it matter if your president is a Christian? Does it matter if your president is uh, an active, you know, church-going person? Does it matter if they pray? Does it matter if they, you know, if they truly believe in a God? Our guest today is Dr. Gary Smith. He is the author of the book Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents. You can find it at any bookstore. And uh, he's teaching us today that um, there's, there's just a lot, of, there's a lot of information that he's put together about how it does matter. And it matters to the president and a lot of the decision-making of the president of the United States. It also matters to policymaking as well. Um, not just in his personal life, but also in his public life. Dr. Gary Smith, thanks again for being with us. 
My pleasure, Matt. What um, what stands out for you as you've studied 22 in this last book, 22 Presidents and Their Religious Beliefs? What uh, Are there any stories that stand out for you where you're like, okay, that is a very um, obvious example of his religion impacting dramatically his presidency? Well, again, I think in almost every case that I've dealt with, the impact has been very striking. Uh, Just to take a a couple of examples, we have the decision of of Harry Truman in May 1948 to recognize the new nation of Israel. And he did it within hours after they declared their independence. And over against the... uh, view and advice of the State Department, and one of the compelling reasons that he did so was because of his understanding of Scripture. He thought from the Old Testament that Israel had been promised to the Jews, and that if he was going to be a a God-fearing and faithful Southern Baptist, that he needed to uh, play a role in helping Scripture be fulfilled and God's designs being accomplished. And so that was one of the main reasons that he took that policy when many were arguing that it wasn't prudent, that Israel wouldn't survive, it wouldn't be a, the Israelis wouldn't be able to defend themselves, it was a bad, uh, it would embroil the United States in a difficult uh, foreign policy issue. Or if we go to Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, of course, is known for some significant moral lapses. On the other hand, he was a strong proponent of religious liberty, and there were several acts that were passed in the 1990s to provide greater religious liberty uh, for Native Americans, in the workplace, in public schools, and and a variety of other settings. Or if we look at our current president, um, uh, he has argued that um, his policies pertaining to poverty, to health care, and particularly to the advancement of uh, young black and Latino males are related to his faith, and he's used the go-to phrase, my brother's keeper, more than 70 times hmm. in speeches that he's given on this, these various subjects. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it, it is truly amazing um, because a lot of times you wonder, right? And, and a lot of times people just get hung up on, you know, something else that's going on, but not seeing the history of how many times one of our presidents might be, you know, kind of going back to that that type of religious paradigm. Who who in all of your studies do you see as as maybe the most uh, religious minded president? I guess that's not faithful because we don't we don't know their faith. We don't know to the degree they're exercising their faith always. But who who do who really was clinging to their religion the most? Yeah, and and there's a lot of ways to evaluate that. Do we evaluate it by church attendance? Do we evaluate it by how much they say they pray, by how often uh, they read the scriptures, and of course a lot of that self-testimony. But then we can look at what others have had to say about them, uh, particularly religious leaders who would have insight into their lives because of their relationships with them, or we can we can certainly look about what they have said privately in, in letters to people uh, about what they believe and what their faith is. So, so based on those kinds of considerations, I would say in terms of most deeply religious presidents, I would put John Quincy Adams, I would put uh, William McKinley, uh, Woodrow Wilson, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, uh, certainly near the top of, of that list. Uh, James Garfield would also be on that list. I don't deal with him in my books because, again, my 
I focus a lot on public policy, and unfortunately, he was shot three and a half months into his presidency yeah. and died seven months into his presidency. There's not much public policy to look at. But those would be my top uh, folks in terms of the most deeply religious American presidents. Who, who would you say are the least uh, you know, religious based on the same criteria? Yeah, that's a little harder to yeah. answer because, again, all presidents have put their best foot forward mm -hmm. and tried to, because the American populace expects it of them, uh, to be somewhat religious and because they, in some ways, fu function as a nation's uh, pastor-in-chief in the absence of a national church. And when there's a crisis, an emergency, they, they provide spiritual uh, guidance and assurance. But that said, I would probably say James Monroe, I would say Andrew Johnson, uh, and I would say a, a number of other presidents uh, in the pre-Civil War period probably would be among the least religious in hmm. our nation's history. What um, for you? I mean, what 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 drove you to do this book, Gary? This is, um, I mean, wh why is this so central to your paradigm? Why are you so, you know, wanting to share these ideas? Well, first and foremost, because I think it does deeply matter. It has a huge impact, and you can read nine hundred page biographies of various presidents that don't mention their religious convictions at all or treat them like they're another hobby like stamp collecting or bird watching. I mean, that just don't get the fact that their religious values were very significant to them in many, many cases, at least 50% of American presidents. So that was the first thing. You know, it's just the fact that I thought their religious convictions were very central and that they had been ignored by biographers and, and presidential historians, political scientists, and others. When I, when I started... My research in 2001 on the first book, there was virtually nothing out there on the subject. Now, fortunately, in the last 14 years, there has been a lot more written and a lot better analysis provided of individual presidents and some collections. So I think a lot more has been done. And, and then just the fact that I knew that this would be a topic that would be interesting to a lot of people. Yeah. And I would be on radio stations like yours. <laughs> why? Oh, I don't know that. What that's going to get you, Gary? Um, why do you sense? <laughs> what, why? Why was there not as much uh, written on it? Why? Why was the curiosity not there or not researched? Is it well, taboo? Great, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, well, obviously, religion and politics are the two things you, you know. Two <laughs> don't mix them. Right. To talk about at dinner parties and in public, right? So, yeah, I think there was a concern about that matter. There's also a lot of uh, skepticism among scholars and who think that presidents use religion only for their own personal advancement and for winning elections and to appear more favorable to the public. So a fair amount of skepticism and cynicism. And, and frankly, just uh, a lot of in the academy, there's a lot of uh, people who aren't uh, Christians, who aren't uh, faith-based people, and so that subject didn't particularly interest them. So mm. a, a lot of reasons, I think. Is there? Do you notice um, even those that aren't like practicing or aren't really you know, out promoting their faith, um, do, do you sense that even they still want the stamp of Christian on their president? Well, absolutely. We've never had a president who has who has not wanted that stamp, who has not in some way affiliated with a church or 
I mean, Barack Obama was the first president that didn't grow up in a Christian family, didn't have a Christian heritage. Hmm. And, and every president has wanted uh, the public to see him as a believer in God, as someone who cares about religious and moral matters, and have and every president has done certain things to promote that view. Hmm. And especially, you know, when you hear your president say at the end of a speech, and God bless the USA or whatever, um, the United States of America, you, you want, yeah, you want him to believe that. Right. You want well, absolutely. To... Although, interestingly enough, that did not begin until Ronald Reagan. Really? Uh, you find very few references to God bless the United States uh, prior to Ronald Reagan. Only a, a handful of uh, times did other presidents say that. But since then, it's been a staple. Interesting. I mean, and two, I just sit there and I think you've got to go pray or go to the funeral or write a letter to the parents of a fallen soldier. Hmm. And to not be able to draw on, you know— a god or a bigger picture, um, it, it's got to leave you kind of hanging. Every president has had to deal with major tragedies, whether it's been an explosion of a spaceship or whether it's been so- soldiers lost in war or a domestic shooting. I think Barack Obama's had more than his share of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, and, and where do you go for resources if you don't have a strong faith in God. And, of course, that language is going to resonate most with the American people. It's going to provide the greatest sense of comfort. Help us with this, just because so many um, people might question Barack Obama, his religiosity, his faith, his Christian beliefs. What have you learned in your research? Well, I think think there's ample evidence that his faith is genuine. If you judge him by the same standards as you judge all his predecessors— um, I don't think there's any reason to doubt his faith. The problem, of course, for many folks is that that faith is, is left of center. It's uh, connected with a history in the United Church of Christ, a, a you know, more progressive, left-leaning Protestant uh, denomination. And so that has led him to take stances on things like uh, gay marriage and abortion that conflict with what religious conservatives believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just a lot of uh, name-calling and animosity out there in the 24-7 news cycle. So... You know, but if you look at what he said at the National Prayer Breakfast, uh, he has been—he's spoken at every one of them. He's been very explicit about his faith. He's talked about Christ's resurrection. He's talked about Jesus being his Savior and Lord. He, he's expressed more doubts about some aspects of the Christian faith than, yeah. than people t- typically do in public life. But again, if I'm going to judge him by the same standard I use for every other president, I'm going to say that his faith is genuine and meaningful. That's—I mean—that's—that's that's what I really like about the book is. You're trying to be objective about it. You're not just trying to, like, promote faith or Christianity. You want an objective view of the presidents, uh, or at least 22 of them. Um, Absolutely. And and to me, that's neat, too. I mean, even though he came from a a different type of uh, congregation, um, and that may be creating some issues, but, you know, too, so did uh, John Kennedy, who who was the first Catholic, and that created a lot of issues as well. Sure. And, you know, just to bring this into the current news cycle, um, we have an amazing situation going on right now in terms of 18 months out to the election, but in terms of who the potential candidates are and who the declared candidates are. I mean, you've got Hillary Clinton, who's got a very strong and and long-lasting Methodist commitment to social justice. And on the Republican side, you've got virtually every Mm -hmm. candidate who professes to have a strong faith that guides him in his uh, potential work. 
you know, five Catholics possibly, and then a, a number of evangelicals. I mean, it's just, it's incredible, frank, frankly. Yeah, and I, I guess it's, do we not see this um, in like Canadian leaders? Do we see this in Europe? Is is religion, does it play as big of a part or as big of a role in other countries? No, definitely not. I mean, you have much less religiosity in Europe in particular, and somewhat less in Canada in terms of church attendance. There's nowhere in Europe where the church attendance is even 10% of the population versus about, depending on surveys, 30 to 40% here in the U.S. And you have had major leaders of countries uh, in other parts of the world who are atheists who've been elected, like uh, Julia Gillard in, in Australia, or um, the, the current president of, uh, of France. So, you know, so you have a number of folks who who are electable in those other societies who profess to be non-believers. Mm. I mean, it really is. I think it's so powerful. Uh, and I think it also sets us aside. I mean, I guess, too, it makes us sometimes seem like zealots. Um, I mean, just in the news. And if everybody has to go to a, get the you know validation from the Christian conservatives of those 16 GOPs, you need to swing the conservatives or the Christian conservatives or whatever – but I, I just think it's, I think it's, it's a core part of our history. Teach us just as we go, Gary, and, and, and answer that idea. Um, what else do we need to just know? When it comes to religion and presidents, what's the one thing that you want Americans to know? Well, I want them to recognize that presidents, as we said earlier, are not saints, that they're going to make mistakes personally and in terms of policy. But we need to recognize that every human being has a core set of values, a worldview, as many people call it, that deeply impacts how they view life, how they view the future, how they view human nature, how they view social justice. And in many cases, that worldview is deeply impacted by religious conviction. And if we don't understand their faith, we're not going to understand their political philosophies, and we're probably not going to understand what they're most likely to do while they're in office and also the kind of person they're going to be uh, while they're leading us as a nation. So I I think that it's very important to understand for the American populace, and I would encourage them to evaluate candidates over the long haul in terms of their professed religious convictions. Yeah. Dr. Gary Smith, again, author of the book Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, teaching us some of the great insights of our own presidents and their religious beliefs. It really, truly is an empowering thing, folks. Whether you're like actively in it or not, we all have that value system. We have something that guides our, our sense of right and wrong a light, whatever you want to call it. Um, It's powerful. It's also powerful to know that people believe in things, especially your president. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and uh, continue the Matt Townsend Show right after these few messages. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Really, truly, when you think about it, um, we judge a person's religion very quickly, right? So if somebody came up to you, I mean, even if they came up and said, oh, you're a Mormon, 
you know, you're going to judge that. We we hear jokes all the time about Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. Name the religion out there. You immediately have this idea of, of who they are. By the way, even if your ideas aren't informed or if, you know, if you haven't really thought it through. So think about you. Would you would you um, judge, discriminate against a certain religion being in the presidency? Is there is there a certain religion you just not, never would vote for that? Yes. What would you – which which – Anyone professing a uh, belonging to the Jedi Order, because that is a religion. Is that a religion? Yeah. Oh, it's a religion. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would have a problem voting for someone who uh, who who believes they're a Jedi. Yes, or they have the potential of becoming a Jedi. Yes, I think I think that's good for a movie, but if it starts to but become part of your life in a shouldn't a we real all way, strive to be a Jedi? I, it'd be cool, but. When it comes to being a president, I don't know if you want someone who is in Luke Skywalker. We trust trying to advance in the Jedi Order. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's really yeah. No, that's a great point. Now they could be a wonderful person. They could be brilliant. They could be a great politician. Uh-huh. They could be the greatest thing for our country. But there's just a lack of confidence in and it the Jedi Order. It doesn't mean they can't go to Comic Con. It doesn't mean they can't participate in the world. Right. I mean, you could see them easily being in Congress. At this point, yeah, absolutely. Anybody could be in Congress. <laughs> it's interesting. But, okay, that, that's a great one. Any others? Can you think of any others that just should not? I mean, that's the deal. Yeah. But would you accept a Muslim? Because then all of a sudden, wow, whoa, first time Muslim. But again, that's what they were saying about Kennedy. Catholic? But, you know, Christian, Mitt Romney, Mormon, huh? Christian, Muslim, Jedi. Jedi. That's the spectrum. There's your spectrum. That's the spectrum. <laughs> no, I, I can see where people would um, would say they, they're open to this, that these, that, you know, these types of, of issues really aren't that big of a, a stumbling block for them. But when it comes down to the actual vote, it might be an issue because – Maybe they don't know enough about what it means to be a believer in that religion and what that what that means to your your decision making and and, and values yeah. that kind of thing. Well, and how do you how do you know if they're really a believer? Well, do they go to church? But yeah, going to church isn't always the best indicator you're a believer. It's hard since so much of politics ends up being like PR and it's uh-huh. for show. How much of that's real? How much of that's just because, hey, there's a camera? Well, and remember how much backlash President Obama had for going to uh, um, Pastor – what was his name? Wright's church? Yes. And I mean that – so if he went faithfully for 20 years, yeah, but you know that pastor's ideas are extreme, but it is a Christian church. So – Yeah. I mean in the end – maybe it, it makes it difficult yeah. when – you have maybe an extreme or, or just a different viewpoint that isn't in uh, in line with the mass of mm-hmm. society and you're, you, and, you, you're associated with that. And way. what happens if you are a believer, a full believer in whatever your tradition is, and yet you also feel it's it, there's kind of an impropriety to constantly bringing it up? I mean there's some people that just don't think you should constantly bring it up. And simply because it might offend others and or – Or it's personal and it's, it's not personal. something you share. It's something private. Let right. me keep my religion private. But I do want you to know I'm praying in the Oval Office on a lot of these decisions. I mean that's cool. 
but I may not want to share it. And then all of a sudden, there's others that want to share every part of it. Yes. And I guess we might think they're more faithful. Or they're possibly doing it for show. Yeah. They're working the system. I mean, it's interesting how many – there's always this like controversial uh, decision where somebody has to go to – who was it that just recently – oh, it was Ted Cruz went to some organization where he made his announcement. Yeah, it was a Christian school. A Christian school. school. And that became such a big deal because yeah, you know that, what that means. A lot of people say that, you know, he made his announcement at a church. Well, it was a Christian school and it was in an arena. Yeah. So I don't know if it was actually a church. It was more of a – what I took it was this, uh, like a – not a basketball arena, but that sort of an environment. Right. So I don't know if it was a church, but he used that that venue probably mm-hmm. because he had access to it. And it was a, a big venue so he could get a big crowd in there. Well, and it just had – it tied him to a strong core of people he wanted to impress. Right. And, and, a, and, stu- and a student body required to be there, <laughs> as we later found out. Yeah, an audience that had to show. <laughs> or you'd, Yeah. Yeah. So religion, presidents, I think it matters totally because Gandhi has a great quote that says, you can't attempt to be something in one compartment of life that you're not in another compartment of life because life is one indivisible whole. You can you can do it. You can be different in compartments, but it's going to impact you. Once you're whatever right. you're whatever you are at the core, it doesn't mean you'll ever live it perfectly. But it will govern your guilt. It'll govern your light. It'll govern your information in every part of your life. And again, he made a great point. None of us are going to live it perfectly. But, but you, you could do it. But there's going to be a side effect. Yeah, and like like, yeah. like you, I mean, Bill Clinton had problems. Right. And yet a few. Yeah. A few. And yet <laughs> you, you knew he believed in God. I mean, it's what's so weird is you can maybe we can put up with the junk and the problems of people if we just know that they are trying to be the best human they can be and they have a bigger person to answer to. But like like the last guest said, people feel more comfortable. They feel more at ease. If they know that this person in the Oval Office is making big decisions mm-hmm. by consulting a higher power. But what if that president was killing it? What if the economy was incredible? What if everybody was off the chart in wealth and growth mode and everything was incredible? Then do you care? Probably not. Until Something a 9-11. Right. <laughs> then you're like, Gah. It's interesting. George W. Bush was one of his top lists of probably most religious people. And he, President Bush got a lot of criticism yeah. for the amount of times that he referenced deity. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? And yeah. not seen as a great president, you know, to many. That might, some of that's a media fabrication because yeah. of some mistakes he made. But. And some of that is also just because it's happened recently. Yes. It'll all change in 20 years, 30 years. Good stuff, friends. Uh, you know, think about it. And think about what it matters to you. Also think about the discussion you might want to be having with your kids about religiosity and and the presidential races. It's, it's an important thing. Bring it up. Start talking about it. We'll take a break, uh, do a little news break as well, and then we'll come back with a whole new hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio.
Good morning, everybody. Top of the morning to you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, the show where we help you uh, live longer and love stronger and lead. Lead the life you've been given, right? You can try to lead everyone else's life. I'd just start with your own, for heaven's sakes. We need a lot more uh, leaders on this earth. Today, uh, got a great show for you. Uh, we're going to be talking about the pregnancy brain. <laughs> Did you ever notice, Terry, when your lovely wife was pregnant, did you believe that her brain changed? Absolutely. Did she seem different? She was tired. Yeah, but that's that might not be her brain. She's a she's a worker. She's That's what I mean. She was working a full-time she, job. She was pregnant. She was just kind of worn down, so I think maybe she was you know, forgetful, absent-minded, she, making some mistakes here and there. She had this baby just yeah. sucking on the reserves. I, we of called her it a parasite. Energy. We called it a parasite. Really? Yeah, because well, I mean, it's what it is, right? Well, it's a positive parasite. Oh, no, it's a healthy parasite. It's what it is. And this kid yeah. was eating like crazy. Oh, my wife loved that because then, yeah, you'd lose a lot of weight too. Um, the yeah, the brain. We're going to talk about. Is there really such a thing as the pregnancy brain? I've heard arguments for and against it. I've even heard that the brain, the woman's brain when pregnant shrinks. Mm. I'm going to ask if that's real. What do you think? Just, it, make, and it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in a, in a good way. But I, I, I would never call my kid a parasite just because well, the, that, the therapy to, to fix that's a big deal. Yeah. I don't tell him to his face. Well, you, now that he listens to the show every day. Well, he, yeah. Is he podcasting? He doesn't podcast at three. Okay, good. He that's barely, good. he barely pays attention to me at three. So that's right. Oh well, yeah. That's the job of a kid, but these are now archived. So you can go on your podcast and find this show and someday we'll be able to play it for your son. And then it'll be like, dad, why'd, why'd you but, call me a Paris? Like, Hey, that wasn't nice. I'm like, yeah, it's all right. I just met a woman named Paris. The other day. Huh. But I'm wondering if it was P-A-R-A-S. Could be. Like Paris-ite. Hmm, makes Possibility you wonder, makes there. Today we'll be talking to Michael Larson, who was uh, part of a study that uh, basically is blowing up this notion about the pregnancy brain. Because if it's true, too, I had pregnancy brain, and I don't know what would explain that. I have it every day. Yeah. You but can, I, you I, can I, call this anything. I think it's because I'm still carrying baby weight. <laughs> But I, I think there's something to being distracted and tired, and your 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 whole life has changed now well, that yeah. this is happening to you when you're when someone is pregnant and you forget things, you're absent minded, uh-huh. things Stress, you're normally on top of, anxiety, yeah. chemistry. There's a lot going on. Yeah, we'll get into it a little bit later. But um, before we do, just a quick update. Speaking of, uh, no, we're not even going to say it because then everyone would wonder. Uh, James, how are you? Doing fantastic. What's with your microphone? I have no idea, actually. It sounds like you're in the shower. I am. <laughs> wow. This, you, I uh, wish I was in the shower. Are you at home in the shower? He's multitasking yes. the show. Are you, you need to be singing in the shower. Okay, we can't even talk to you. No. No, not really. It's like a remote broadcast from the shower. I will, I will respond to all your questions via sound effect. Okay, great. James will now communicate with us through sound effect because uh, he's showering at home. James, how, how's the how, how's the wedding plans? How are they going? That would be positive, I believe. Okay, this is going to be fun. Um, uh, not only the plans, are you still in love? That's a clown question, bro. That's a clown question, bro, with the ding. Mm. Interesting. That seems mm. positive, I guess. Right, yeah. Uh, is the date, how many days away are we? 
Is that 10? 12? I'm, ten. I'm, I'm okay. getting off on the 10th floor. <laughs> I was like, wait. I, Excuse me. I this is my floor. <laughs> How interesting is that? And everything's happy. We're still good. You've already asked. It's the grand finale. There you go. Do angels sing at your wedding? Is it going to be a big deal, James? Are children involved? That's them. He's going to have kids as part of the ceremony. This chorus of children. It's fantastic. It's kind of fun that now that James can't talk. Well, he can. It just sounds like he's in the shower. Or sticking his head out the window with a cell phone. James was always about hygiene. Did you notice that? Really? Yeah. Hmm. They call him the Hygiene James. Okay. If he was a cowboy, yeah. that's what his name would be. Are you the Hygiene James? It's like Twinkie the Kid, but... Hygiene James. Exactly, like Twinkie the Kid. Okay. Kind of a big deal. He's kind of a big deal. Uh, okay, good. Good stuff. Uh, we'll talk. We'll we'll listen to your sound effects later, James. Anything else going on in the news? <laughs> in an effort to uh, cut down on internet-based abuse. Internet-based abuse. Okay. You know, people attacking each other. Yeah. Twitter will broaden its punishment against abusive users, according to an update on their uh, their blog on Tuesday. Whereas before only direct specific threats were banned, any promotion of violence against others can now get a user suspended. Really? So there's cracking down on this pervasive environment that was just people attacking each other. And uh, there was the Gamergate situation uh, last year, I believe it was, where... Uh, women were being just attacked and threatened, hmm. and people were putting their addresses on Twitter and saying, hey, really? go over to her house, you know, that kind of thing. So now they have a policy that they can suspend you, but wouldn't they – I mean, if something was going on, they would just they could just always turn you off. Yes, but they try, they try to have a policy to keep it as open as possible. Sure. They want the conversation. They want as many people they as possible want to abuse. use it. But they don't want abuse. So if you're uh, – before it was if there was a direct specific threat, they those people got banned – but now if you are promoting violence in any way against another person, then that is uh, That's good. also a violation of your agreement to use the service. Good job, Twitter. And it could be uh, a suspension temporarily for kind of a timeout, or they could ban you permanently. I would send them to their room. It's kind of what it is. It is. But see, then a, again, if they, if they ban you permanently, then you just come back as another identity. Right. Uh, scientists in Japan mm-hmm. have uh, suggested a new way – to get rid of all that space junk that's rotating, that's in orbit yeah. around the Earth. We send up a space. They want to attach a, labor, a laser to the International Space Station. Oh, wow. And what it would do is it wouldn't necessarily destroy. It would kind of bump the space garbage into the atmosphere so it would burn up. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it would like displace it and then it would burn up. On reentry. Yeah. Problem with that is some of the stuff up there wouldn't burn up completely, which would leave small parts of it flying through yeah. the atmosphere. Falling molten metal. <laughs> at high rates of speed, hitting cars, people, buildings, mm. causing property damage and physical damage to people. So The doctor in me says that's dangerous. Could be a downside. The other downside is putting a possible weapons platform on a rotating space station. Okay, that sounds that could more be a, like that it. could be an issue. And then you could go up there and like blow those up. Like, how cool would it be to have the job? What do you do? I'm going up well, into no, the space they're, station. They're worried about turning the laser around on the Earth. Well, yeah, they would never picking do that. off people. But people just have issues yeah. with this. It's because they, you know, people that those people watch Bond too much. You got the Death Star. 
Yeah, the Death Star did it, yeah. The Justice League, they had oh, a space man. station yeah. called yeah. the Watchtower. It had mm-hmm. a laser on it. Oh. Bad idea. That's true. Uh, these scientists need to watch more TV. So there's lots of examples where mm-hmm. we can look to to, to see this. Uh, the fast growth of specialized scents in fabric softeners, household cleaners, and body sprays has helped make America and the typical American smell sweeter and cleaner than ever. A burgeoning industry. The good, it's good news for our nose, but terrible news for the once bountiful business. The nation's perfume and cologne industry sales in the U.S. of mass fragrances, the, those uh, non-designer scents bottled for middle-class clientele. Yeah. Right? They have plummeted $600 million since, two, uh, what, since 2000. They've dropped $600 million. If, so, you, if you get in a car with you know five teenage boys, you will feel like you are at an axe plant. Body sprays, body sprays are big, big, galore. Cut into this. Now, the higher end, yeah, the really expensive. The yeah. more, I guess, the article pointed to the one percenters. <laughs> that that uh, market has exploded like to a record five point two billion dollars last year. Five point two billion. Yes, that's a lot of good smells right but there. The, the lower to middle class markets have dropped because there's these other products yeah. that are that are doing the job. So you don't need to cover up. Your, you don't need you don't need a cologne when you've got. Axe body spray. Well, and you've got shampoo that smells. You've yes. got your lotions and potions. and Like James, did you see him yesterday? He unbuttons his shirt. He's got that hairy chest. He's got a lot of bling on. He wears a lot of gold. Right. But he smells like, he smells like. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That, that might be overstating it. Yeah, but... I don't think it smells like that. <laughs> It was different than that. But it, he just smells like, I don't know, about a 60-year-old man Wow! from the 70s. <laughs> There's just, a compliment if I have ever heard it's one. It's just right piling there. on the old spice. Yeah. But it's hot. So I found that interesting. That uh, That's cool. People who can basically afford the cologne are buying it and people who can't are not. Yeah. Based on body sprays and fragrances that are in now all you need is like one of those air fresheners we had an air freshener in our restroom at at the office and man i just go in there and take the air freshener and rub it on my neck and smell like a million bucks we're going to take a break my friends Uh, when we come back dr michael larson will be joining us he is one of the lead researchers on a study about pregnancy brain we're going to Talk about the myth of pregnancy brain. Is it a real deal? When your spouse, when your wife is pregnant, does she really lose her mind? We'll get into it. Find out the data. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever just, you get up in the morning, you forgot something, you lost your keys, maybe your wallet, you know, then you go back to get them, and on your way back, you get a little distracted, and then you forget why you were going back, and then you're just all over the house. Well, if this describes your morning, and you happen to be pregnant, people will tell you that you're suffering from pregnancy brain. But according to a recent study at BYU led by Dr. Michael Larson, this may not be the case. You may actually just be a tad bit forgetful. Uh, Dr. Larson is joining us. He's a clinical neuropsychologist with research interests in cognitive control functioning 
and uh, he received his Ph.D. from the University of Florida. Dr. Larson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Uh, honored to have you on the show. So uh, teach us about pregnancy brain. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, I guess, is it a myth that when women get pregnant, they, they just, they can't remember. They lose their mind. It doesn't work the same way. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call it a myth per se, but what we found is that on laboratory tests, memory, executive function, planning, spatial skills, they were just fine. But their perception of their memory hmm. was much poorer. Interesting. So they believe their their memory is much lo- lower than it really is. That's correct. It's it's more of the self-report belief rather than the objective neural measures that we used. Now, I heard, and you tell me if this is true, I heard that when a female is pregnant, her brain shrinks. Yeah, that, there's one study that showed that. It, it does tend to come back rather quickly. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, but there is one study that shows that in about 10 women. Well, and it's, oh, in 10 women. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because if, me- if they also measured their husband's brains, <laughs> that might change everything, huh? Um, so, so really all this is is it's a perception error. It's, is it just kind of an attribution error? We just kind of attribute it to being pregnant when normally we would just attribute it to being tired or whatever. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both going on there. So one thing that a few studies have looked at is this concept of stereotype threat. There's a stereotype out there that when women are pregnant or soon after giving birth, that they'll be more forgetful and that they'll have more issues with remembering things and planning and day-to-day activities. And so sometimes things that they may have done normally, they pay more attention to and buy into a little more. I think the second thing is also what you mentioned. There's definitely a fatigue factor. There's definitely tiredness that comes with the baby and trying to remember more things that are going on. We don't discount that at all. Uh, Definitely can be more challenging, but the brain processes are still there to do well. So it's interesting. So much of this, and there is, it seems like there really is a lot. There's a lot of stereotypes. Um, There are a lot of stereotypes around just around pregnancy. And we, you know, and there's, I guess there's even a lot of stereotypes around, it's kind of like newlyweds. Getting, getting married is like, oh yeah, they're clueless. They have no idea. And yet um, we don't ever kind of question the stereotype, but your research is starting to say, no, okay, it's, it's, it's just a perception. It's not necessarily a reality. Yeah, that's true. And we're definitely not the first study on this. There's been multiple studies that show this absence of differences between women who are pregnant or in the postpartum period. One study even followed women from before they were pregnant all the way through their pregnancy after birth and showed no real cognitive changes. Hmm. So we're not first, but what makes ours unique is that we combined both the self-report measures and the more objective measures and found the, the self-report perception of difficulty in the absence of, of actual difficulties. Okay. Is, so um, do, based on what you've studied, really the only difference in um, cognitive abilities would be perception. Based. Yeah, and I, I think that the research would, not only our study, but several studies before ours would, would support that. There is one caveat there, and some more naturalistic studies that showed specific baby-related tasks have shown a little bit of a decline uh, in the postpartum period specifically. But if you look at general tasks of memory, remembering a shopping list, remembering a story, those kind of things all remain intact. What would a baby, what, what do you mean by a baby uh, 
focused or baby-centered task? Yeah, so the the tasks are trying to bring them into a laboratory, but trying to remember exact baby schedules, trying to remember when you change things, huh. how, when you feed, when you put to bed, those kind of things to show a slight decline. Okay. So other than that, um, pretty much before and after were the same. And so, I mean, if we had attention deficit disorder before uh, we got pregnant, the the female would basically show the exact same signs throughout it. She just might report that she's really losing her mind. You got it. Is it is it that she's more keenly aware when yeah, she's I, pregnant? Maybe it heightens her sense of perception. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. There are some theories out there that suggest a heightened attention focus both to the environment and to your own performance for mm. the safety of the child. Uh, those theories haven't always, they're not 100% consistent in the research, but it could be an attention to your surroundings. It could be just attention to problems. You know, because you're expecting them, they become more salient. Interesting. I mean, this really is, it seems like now that we have all this technology and we have brain scans that we can do and, and research that we can take on, it seems like we should know a lot more about what's going on with our pregnant women. Yeah, it's actually kind of a tough question because we don't put pregnant women in most MRI scanners or things just because of potential risk to the fetus. Uh, there is an interesting side to this study that we haven't published yet. We did EEGs on all these women, mm. and we looked at how their brains responded when they made mistakes, and we're also showing in our analyses thus far that they, they're no different from both themselves from the pregnant to postpartum period and from healthy women that have never been pregnant. So our brain responses, in addition to these tests, aren't showing any differences. So really, and so they, they recover, they're the same, they're not... <laughs> messed up. Yeah, there's not even a recovery because they never get worse. Isn't that interesting? Is it um I mean that really is that think of how many generations of humans on this earth have wondered or just gone through the fog and thought, "Uh, have you ever noticed if it goes down, does anything change over multiple children over time?" You know, we actually tested that in this study. We had several women that had multiple pregnancies and some women that were on their first pregnancy. And the number of pregnancies and number of children they'd had didn't make a difference. Huh. So um, when we get into this, and I mean, and now that you're out kind of on the tour talking about it, what, what feedback are you hearing? What are you getting from people as they interact with this new research? You know, it's been, it's been an interesting experience for me. It's mimicked our research in that the women who I've heard from are either a little upset or saying that the research is wrong, saying that the self-report of memory difficulties is there, just like we found, and that the only reason that there was no difference between these women is because we were in a lab. Hmm. And there, there's truth to that uh, yeah, in that regard. Yeah, so, they might be paying more attention. Yeah. That's that's actually interesting. Yeah, so you'd had you'd have to somehow figure out a way to test it out in the field. Yeah, and the other piece of feedback we've gotten is that this was research conducted by men. Yeah, so well, to set that straight. There were several female authors and female faculty on the study as well. Yeah, but were they pregnant? Uh, they had been. Okay, yeah. <laughs> isn't that interesting? I mean, like, come on, Michael, you can't pass off as knowing anything about a pregnant woman. Yeah, it's, uh, that's been an, some interesting feedback. I mean, it's interesting too. I guess they don't always quite understand research. Because it's pretty – it's, you know, there's other people in the game. We've got a lot of validated instruments that work without the bias of you guys. Um, does depression play a role in this at all? So 
So in our study, no, we specifically screen depression out to control for that factor. Yeah. Uh, in other studies, it does suggest that depression can increase cognitive difficulties and further increase the perception of cognitive difficulties. So mm. my, my short answer would be yes, depression can play in can definitely play a role, but in our study, no, because we screened it out. Do you know roughly what percentage of women that are pregnant suffer like postpartum depression? Yeah, the ballpark is about 15 percent, okay. 15 to 20 percent. So that might impact 15 to 20 percent might have, uh, you know, some signs. But yep. Interesting. It really it's a it's such a it just seems like a no brainer, but it seems like a a simple validation of something um and i and i think we need a lot more of this we need we need to not because the prejudice is there and sometimes we look at pregnant women like oh yeah give her a break she doesn't have a clue what's going on right now but the reality is no and and maybe if we can blow up that myth and start taking it on that uh, might teach us something really powerful let's do this we're going to take a break uh, we're talking in with dr michael larson and some research he's been doing on uh, the pregnant brain and some of the learnings about, you know, maybe you're not as forgetful as you think you are. Uh, it's it's pretty interesting research. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Again, you're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you've ever uh, been pregnant or if you your spouse, your wife has been pregnant and you thought, holy cow, what's happening to her? You might believe in this idea that uh, once she's pregnant, you know, she just can't focus. She can't think right. She's off. Her brain just isn't working. You may have even called it pregnancy brain. Uh, but uh, some of the latest research, according to Dr. Michael Larson, who's joining us, he's a researcher here at uh, Brigham Young University, they're basically going to blow up this idea that you that your cognitive abilities drop when you're pregnant. Because the research now, according to uh, our scholar Michael Larson, basically shows, no, you pretty much stay the same cognitively before and after your child. Is that the truth there, Michael? Yeah, I'd say that's the the overall story is that the feeling is definitely there that people's memory and overall performance is going down. But when you look at laboratory-based measures of thinking and memory, that they don't really change. So that's, I mean, in a way, this should be a breath of fresh air. Yeah, that's what we'd hope. I mean, that's that's our take-home message, though not everyone's perceived it that way. Our take-home message is that women should feel empowered in this regard. You don't have to feel like things aren't going to go well. And if they're not going going well, you can say, hey, you know, maybe tomorrow will be a better day. I'll be okay. You're not at the mercy of the hormones or uh, the mercy of pregnancy. Yeah, I guess that's what we think. We think it's like this fog that comes over. In fact, uh, Julianne Holt-Lundstad, who is a study co-author and a mother of two, she she went through it, and when she had uh, children and had to care for her babies, she said it did take a toll. Um, and she would just she said she struggled through a lecture, you know, the next day, and I felt like I was in a fog. I couldn't think straight. But she just chalked hers up to self dep- or sleep deprivation. Others chalk it up to just I've got the pregnancy brain. 
Yeah, and I think the sleep deprivation is real. We don't, don't discount that at all. Yeah. I have two children, and, and I've been through that. So it, we're not saying that there aren't difficulties with being pregnant in the postpartum period. We're not saying any of that. We're just saying the brain is functioning at the same level it was before. Yeah. But fatigue and things can definitely play a role. Well, And also, I guess that should give hope because you, it also means – your recovery can also – you're going to focus on the right thing. Instead of just waiting for supposedly all your chemistry to change and you get back to the normal non-pregnant women, if, if really functionally you're, you're okay, even if you're suffering the fog, then that means maybe attribute the fog to something else and go work on that. Yeah, that's correct. And, and know that you know today may be a bad day, but I'll get back. My, my brain is okay. Yeah. It really uh, – I mean it is, it's an interesting dilemma too because – I know people that don't want to go through that fog or they don't want to have the likelihood of postpartum depression. And so they actually postpone or or kind of give up some of the desire to have a baby because they don't want to go through it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a tough, tough place to be in. I would say that this research suggests I wouldn't worry as much about that. The fatigue and other difficulties that come with childbirth are real, but uh, but that you don't have to worry as much about your brain taking a big hit. Right. And you're a neuro, how does it, a clinical neuropsychologist. So right. so when, when we when we think about that, um, if if a woman is struggling in, in postpartum with something, or even in pregnancy. Um, what can they do to kind of prepare themselves to maybe manage their perception of their moods or their situations? What can they do cognitively to to be better prepared to think it through? Yeah. So oftentimes we'll we'll have people look at evidence and likelihood. What's the evidence that this is suggesting something bad is happening? Do I have evidence to the contrary? Has this ever happened before? Did it happen mm. before I was pregnant? What's the likelihood that this means something bad is happening? If you look for evidence and likelihood, typically you can you can challenge the thoughts and pull yourself out of whatever you're feeling at the time. Because I guess sometimes we we don't look at all the evidence. We maybe favor negative evidence over positive evidence. We discount certain evidence. And you're saying make sure you get as much evidence as you can and, and kind of do it objectively. Yeah. And specifically, if people are feeling symptoms of depression, you know, even in our study, the feeling of decreased quality of life was there in the pregnant and postpartum women, which makes sense. You know, you're carrying around a... Yeah. A heavy weight and it's difficult on the body yeah. throughout and then in the postpartum period obviously the fatigue and adjusting to the baby so quality of life goes down mood goes down in many cases and like we said it gets severe enough to be called postpartum depression in 15 to 20 percent you know so those difficulties are there but as as we as we challenge the thoughts look for evidence knowing that we often put on sunglasses is how i like to describe it we yeah. look for negative things or or stereotypes that hopefully we can overcome some of that. And especially, I guess, if we're already feeling down and dejected and we don't look good anymore and, oh, man, stretch marks and all of these things, um, yeah, then all of a sudden you're already down. So choosing negative data would be fairly easy. Yeah. <laughs> Noticing all the bad. What, what do I do as a husband, uh, as a caregiver for somebody that's pregnant? Um how do we it's and it's even like the 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 dissenters about your study like you're a man you wouldn't know what do we say as a husband to help our wives through this yeah i think the first point would be to be very validating don't 
you know, the the worst thing that could happen from this study is having having husbands saying, oh, what you're experiencing isn't real. This isn't yeah. right. That's the last thing we want to happen. Rather be validating, be understanding. Yeah, that's hard. Gosh, you know, this is difficult. And then then try and engage them. Talk through it. Look for the evidence. And if if the time is right, distract and go do something different. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's the right time to go do something fun. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and sometimes sometimes it's better to just you know, let your actions do the talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but in no way should a husband or family member ever belittle or say this isn't real. Yeah. Rather be validating and empathic. Grow up, you witch. <laughs> I, I, I had a guy call his wife. Uh, he called it the witching hour. But um, anytime she was in a state of what I guess would be pregnancy brain, he thought. Um, and she was not quite right or balanced were his words. He'd call it the witching hour. And I'm like, are you listening to what you're saying? And you want her to trust you and to like you? It's not It's not about that. So the idea that you can go blow up this myth, I think, could maybe straighten a lot of this out. Yeah. And I, and I think just in how we interact, you know, validation and acceptance is going to go a lot mm-hmm. further than being cynical or being being difficult in that regard. Yeah, or name-calling or anything like that. Mm-hmm. What else, uh, as we wrap this up, what what do we need to know um, just in general? And where do you think you're going to end up taking this study now? Yeah, so I, I think the broad things to realize that mood, you know, there's a little difference in mood, quality of life, but that overall the, the brain processes are intact. And our, our next steps through those EEG studies I mentioned earlier. So we're going to be looking at how women process errors. We're going to be looking at their, their brain waves essentially while they've done a couple different tasks. And our preliminary analyses on these show that there aren't differences there either. So that would hmm. probably be the next step for us. Do Just a little aside, do women tend to um, be more self-critical? We, uh, you hear that theory uh, that they kind of they're more self-critical. They beat themselves up a little bit more. Do you see that in your research? Boy, you know, I've never specifically studied or looked into depth on the actual research literature on okay. that. Do you sense that uh, pregnant women tend to be more self-critical than normal? Yes, that one I can definitely say, and and they tend to that stereotype that's out there does tend to perpetuate that idea as well. Interesting, and that probably perpetuates more of the funk, doesn't it? Correct. Interesting. I mean, really, it's there's kind of no end to this, and um, so man, the EEG data that's got to be kind of fun because it's safe for the mom and the baby. But it's it's probably some pretty interesting stuff you can go collect. Correct. And we'll be one of the first groups to publish the EEG data specifically. So we're looking forward to getting that completed and, and out there. Oh, that's good stuff. Again, Dr. Michael Larson, uh, researcher here at Brigham Young University, and uh, published this study in – where did you publish it? It's called the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology. Sounds like a great read. That's a tough read, Michael. But I guess in your industry, that's just that's the must, the go-to book. Yeah, it's just one of the journals. That's awesome. Good stuff. Uh, Dr. Michael Larson, so appreciate you and the great insight. Blowing up the myth of, um, of pregnancy brain. It's a perception. It's a perception. It's, we, we just perceive it. But, you know, cognitively, you're functioning pretty much the same during pregnancy and uh, after pregnancy. But our perception's a very big deal. It tends to make us or break us, doesn't it? We're going to take a break, my friends. Come back, get into the coach's corner. I'm going to give you my take a little bit more on perception 
and uh, and how it can continue to make us and break us in all of our relationship issues. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we've been talking about the pregnancy brain, and uh, it's interesting that uh, the research shows basically it's a it's a perception. You feel, you perceive that your brain is way off, and you're not able to think. You're not able to to do the tasks that uh, that you want to do. And in a way, notice how important that is, is you feel it, right? And so one of the dilemmas we run into in trying to create change in our lives is we have to overcome feelings because the feeling, according to the pregnancy brain myth, you feel like your brain isn't working. And yet, according to the research, objectively, your brain is working the same. Objectively, the data shows your ability to you know, recall and to understand and to see and to remember and to do a task is the same as it is during pregnancy versus postpartum after the, after the pregnancy. So, but the feeling isn't there. And so many times I just realize that it's the feeling we have to, we have to work on. And one of the tools I wanted to talk about uh, in this coaching corner is this idea of just patience. I mean, if you think about it, and we joked about it a little bit earlier, you're growing a baby. You're growing a human being in your body. The, The mere fact that you have another human growing inside of you, it should impact you. But it's also probably heightening your chemistry it's heightening your attention, according to our last expert, Dr. Michael Larson. We might be um, have more attention. We might be more prone to performance so that we can protect our baby, things like that. And so one of the things I just want us to work on, and this is just as important for the pregnant person as it is for the, the spouse, the family, the children, as we're going through this process of having a baby, is, is patience. And sometimes the hardest thing about patience is – you're not patient. And so I'm supposed to, A, turn off my emotions, which are it's hard. I can't tell you to do that per se. But I can have you start to do um, some other things. And as you're pregnant or if you're thinking of getting pregnant or just in life in general, I, I I'd highly suggest you might have a day where you, you take on patience and really – Take it on. And a great uh, article that I read about, this was on a website called Zen Habits, Z-E-N Habits, and uh, .net. And there's 15 tips for becoming as patient as Job. But one of them, if you remember, Job was an Old Testament story about a very faithful man who um, had to basically persevere through a really difficult life. So let me give you a few tools, okay? First idea is uh, figure out what your triggers are. If you know that your triggers are, even as a pregnant woman or as a whatever, that, that kind of spikes your, your, your reactivity, if your trigger is your body and your body doesn't look good, if your trigger is that you're tired, if you notice that a lot of the moments you're most impatient, it's simply because you're hungry. Just having a granola bar might get rid of some 
of your triggers. If you're triggered easily because you're hungry, if you're triggered easily when you're tired, if you're triggered easily when somebody uh, hurts you or offends you, one thing that triggers me a lot more with my children than, than anything tends to be when I feel they're disrespecting me. A lot of times my kids will come home and say, hey, dad, can we can we have a sleepover or can we do a laidover somewhere? And I'm like, no. My answers a lot of times is just no. Honestly, I don't know why I automatically say no, but I'm pretty much an automatic no. So my kids will be like, um, oh, OK, uh, where's mom? And I'll be like, it doesn't matter. Your mom's gone. She'll never come back. Uh, just leave mom alone. No, Ma, I, I want to just talk to mom. Is mom on her phone? Does she have her phone? Uh, no, we took mom's phone. Why, why do you need to call her? No, never mind. And then my child will walk away. Then they'll, they'll call their mom. And about 10 minutes later, my son will walk out holding his sleeping bag and his pillow. And he'll say, bye, dad. I'm going to so-and-so's to have a sleepover. And I'm like, what? I thought, no, we're not. No, I talked to mom. She said it's good. Bye. She'll be home in a minute. Oh, that makes me mad. That's my trigger. I'm easily, and again, I don't feel that. I don't, that doesn't bother me when others do that. But at home, my own kids go to my wife and my wife goes around my back. It becomes a trigger. But I know that trigger. And then my wife will come and say, yeah, why didn't you want the kids to go have a sleepover? I don't know. I don't know. We'd end up talking it out and figure out, but it's a trigger. What are your triggers? When you're pregnant is is the biggest trigger when you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, man, my body's a mess. Does that trigger you? Is the trigger that you just can't do everything? Is the trigger that you're tired and you're not in the same kind of mood? Is the trigger that you're eating more and you're hungry all the time? What are your triggers? As a husband whose wife is pregnant, what are your triggers? When you see your wife crying and you're wondering, why is she so – why is she worrying about all these things we don't need to worry about? A lot of times with men, it might be that your trigger is simply that you don't feel like you're providing. You're not taking care of her enough because she's still not happy. She's still in pain. She still has worries. We've got to know what our triggers are. Another tool you can do to just create patience instantly is a deep breath. I find myself for years, I'd find myself just <sighs> like sighing. And my wife once asked me, why do you always like gasp and sigh? I had no idea. But it was stress. So when I was stressed, I'd start breathing tighter, more shallow breaths, more shallow breaths. It was constantly all day I'd be breathing shallow, running, stressed to get to the next meeting, get to the next speech. And then finally, and I'm not like this Zen, you know, meditation guy. I finally uh, listened to an audio series about breathing and a really deep breath can be so cleansing. In fact, uh, I actually learned it in journalism school when I was doing TV reporting. Before every time the TV would come on, we all take a really big, deep cleansing breath and it would just make you relax. You feel peace. Another way to feel patient is counting to 10. I, I've never always, I, I've never believed that because I used to be able to count to 10 while my sisters were bothering me. And then I'd go off and haul off and hit them or chase them and tickle them. And so I believe counting works because it puts us in another brain. But let me give you a little better tool. If you really want to get patient with somebody, before you go off and start reacting to what they're saying, count backwards from 1 million by 17s. Try that. Count backwards from 1 million by 17s. By the time you're, I don't know, 
100 to 200, uh, you know, counts down, you're probably going to be pretty much have forgotten what you were about to fight about. <laughs> Another rule, start small. You don't have to be patient in everything in life. Maybe just learn to be patient with your children. Maybe just learn to be patient with your children in the mornings. If you notice that there's certain times of day, I call them intersections. A lot of us have certain intersections where we lose our patience. It might be in the morning. It might be at what I call killing time, which is that beautifully affectionate moment at 6 o'clock in the evening when we have 500 things to do as a family and everyone's going in different directions. If I know that that's where I lose my patience, then maybe I just need to work on being patient in that moment. If it's bedtime rituals where I need to be more patient, target a very specific time, start smaller, and just figure out how you can decrease triggers, breathe through that moment. Maybe you need to go psych yourself up, have a little Zen moment for a bit, have a prayer in your heart or whatever you use to, to get centered again, and then go work on that time. Take, be willing to take a time out for yourself. Go prepare yourself. Another cool thing is just to remember what's important. You know, do you have a concept for if if I asked you, if I came up with a microphone, stuck it right in your face and asked you, what are the five things that you want people to remember about you when you're done with this great earth experience? Would you know what your five things are? Could you just list your five things for me? Because if you can then that's something that will probably enhance your patience because those are the five things. Uh, Thoreau said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to confront the essential facts of life and see what life had to teach and not when I come to die discover that I had not lived. He wanted to confront the essential facts of life. To me, knowing what your top five most important things are in your life And don't just make it people. Don't just make it names. What do you want these people to say about you? What do you want your kids to say? What do you want your spouse to say? What do you want your friends to say? So if your wife is pregnant and you know how you want to be remembered as a husband and a father, as loving, as compassionate, as attentive, and you know those are your top five things, your essential facts, then when you're starting to get stressed or when you're preparing to go in and talk to somebody that you know is stressed, Big deep breath and think about your most important things. Visualize. You can have visualizations that might bring peace to you. Another really cool way is um, laughter. One of my favorite things are just to find some co- some comedy or some um, – on Sirius XM, I listen to a lot of the uh, the different stations that, that have comedians on them. I also go to do podcasts and listen to those. But laughter, it's one of the reasons I love it so much and I want it on the show more and more and more is because it just heals us. We need a laugh now and then, right? So patience is there, my friends. None of us is um, none of us is going to get through this crazy ball of mud without a trial, without a push, without something that's going to test us. And the minute you're starting to lose your patience, you're, you're right there in that learning moment. You're now in the moment when you're going to be able to conquer something and do something different. Ralph Waldo Emerson has a great quote that came off of this Zen Habits article. Um, Again, it's a post written by Leo Babauta on the website zenhabits.net. But uh, the quote is, patience and fortitude conquer all things. And by the way, there's nothing harder, I think, than being patient when you're going through, for example, 
uh, a medical issue or a medical procedure or a sickness or pregnancy. It's patience. Ah, And sometimes you just need to let stuff pass. Sometimes things just happen. And your most stressful moments, we just need to let them pass. Patience, my friends. Patience. Not easy. Don't want to pretend like it is. And it's important. It's one of those universal truths. Not easy and important. And tomorrow we do it again. And today, 15 more times. And it won't end. And last night, again, got to go sit with my friend, 99 and a half years old, that's dying. (sighs) It's just patience. He really wants to get out of here. And he just knows it's not time yet or he'd be gone. So we'll see him again tomorrow. Um, Pretty, pretty amazing example. Folks, that is uh, the Coach's Corner. Book it. Done. Put that on a meme. And uh, put that on your Facebook page. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, Also do some headlines. And when we come back, start a brand new hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world on BYU Radio. morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. You know, free of charge. We bring you the tools, the ideas, the things you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. Have we got a great show for you or what? Coming up uh, on the show today, we're going to be talking about the ideal parenting style for teen online safety. If you have children, grandchildren that are teenagers that are using all those contraptions and devices to communicate, uh, you know what? You, you might want to know the best way to parent those, keen, those teens so that uh, they're, they're safe. And we'll be getting into that. Also, let's just do a quick check and see if James is still in the shower. James, are you there? Yes, still here in the shower. How long are you going to be in the shower, James? Uh, still cleaning. Hygiene is very important to me. <laughs> they call him Hy- <laughs> They call him Hygiene James. This is his third hour. We are now starting his third hour in the shower. James, if you could just uh, let me talk to you one more second here. Uh, what does it look like? Is everything, uh, you know, you've been in there, you've got to be like a big raisin by now. Yeah, looking pretty pruney, but uh, very clean. <laughs> okay. Keep us updated. We will continue these uh, play-by-play details of James and his three-hour shower. Yes. Hygiene James. That's what they call him. Uh, Those of you that are just joining us, here's the deal. We have a little uh, hum in our microphone, and they're trying to fix it, but it sounds like James is really in the shower. And so every once in a while, we will go check in, make sure he's still okay. (sighs) Hygiene James, they call him. It's his... Way of celebrating Earth Day. That's it. He's trying to be clean. He's probably wasting a lot of water. So that's not so. So it's Earth a misguided Day-ish. approach yes. to Earth Day. Yeah, but that's a great point. Nonetheless, great point. he's trying to be clean. He is. <laughs> he's trying. That's the word. So, Earth Day. Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. 
I, what do you what do you say on Earth Day? Do you say Happy Earth Day? I don't know. Top of the Earth is Day it, morning it, to you. Is it Merry Earth Day? Happy Earth Day? Yeah. I think it's Merry Merry Earth Day. Merry Earth Day. Yeah. All right. That feels good to me. Well, we got that out of the way. <laughs> Merry Earth Day. What uh, what's going on in the news? A uh, senator in New York. Hmm. So, a state senator of New York is trying to pass a bill that would require diaper changing stations in all men's bathrooms. Oh, boy. They he, figured it out. He's annoyed. Yeah. His four-year-old daughter, he's having to, to change his daughter mm-hmm. on the floor of men's rooms. Ah. Oh. Because there's no table. Yeah, no. And I've had that situation oh, myself. Yeah. You walk in, you're like, where do I, you know, there's yeah. no place. They're always in the women's restrooms. Right. But they're never in the men's restrooms. See, in the rest of the country, we would just like maybe do it in the car. But in New York... A lot of them don't have cars, right? And and honestly, the car isn't necessarily the most. Uh, yeah, but it beats doing it on the table in the middle of the IHOP. Yes, you know what I mean. But maybe that's where you should do it in a form of protest. Yes, so that they put a changing table in the restaurant. Well, one thing about it is, if you put your baby and start changing him in the middle of the IHOP, I'm going to bet people are going to start listening to you. They're going to talk. Right. Things the, are the one hang up on this. The installation of the changing table in the men's room would be at the expense of the business. Okay. So the state's going to – they're going to mandate you have to have them in the men's rooms and the businesses are going to now have to go pay whatever that is, 500 bucks or whatever. To, yeah. So that he could get some pushback on mm-hmm. that one. I think the idea is sound. I do too. Totally. Except that was a secret that the, a lot of guys didn't want well, figured out. Yeah. You look, you look over at the wife, you're like, I'm sorry. I mean, if you want me, that's what I – with my kids, I'm like, you really don't want our kids to go to the bathroom in the men's room. It's yeah. disgusting. It's kind of gross. Men are pigs. Right. So then she would take them. But now it's you know more equality. Yeah. Everyone's taking part, taking responsibility. Yeah. Good, so. good. Uh, a New York judge – we'll stay in New York for a while – ruled this week to grant lawyers representing two chimpanzees a hearing to challenge the animal's confinement – the judge's ruling comes in response to a complaint filed by the Non-Human Rights Project on behalf of two chimpanzees held at Stony Brook University. In response to the ruling, the university will be required to demonstrate to a court that it has reason to detain the chimpanzees. I believe this is called a habeas corpus. Ah. Now, huh. the Non-Human Rights Project argued that by granting the chimpanzees habeas corpus, the judge has implicitly determined the chimps are persons. Oh, so they You've given them a human right. They they have the right to know why they're being detained. Just like you and me if we're arrested, we have a right to know why we are being detained. The court you has mean, said now that the the school has to come out and say why they're detaining the chimpanzees. Holy cow. Let me get this straight. Yeah. So, I mean, you mean you mean their handlers need to know why they're being detained. This says the chimps because the lawyers, the chimps are being represented by lawyers in court. Can you just see two cops, like, handcuffing two, two monkeys, yeah. two chimpanzees, I guess, and putting them in the back of a car? You know, the, the the cameras are on them. There's just one little sad, lonely chimp looking out the window like, I don't even know what's going on. I think the end result here is the non-human rights project is trying to get the school to admit that they're testing on these animals. There you go. So they're just trying to get attention. Yes, they're trying to get attention. But in the same way, they're saying now the court has determined that the chimps are persons giving them the same rights as humans, (laughs) or at least one right. Can you imagine 
what that's got to look like when the attorneys try to actually get paid by these gyms. Yes. Well, I, I bet you the non-human rights – They'll cover it, you will cover it. No. I bet you not. I bet you that chimp's going to start throwing stuff at him. If you've been to the chimp exhibits, well, yeah, they, they throw a lot they, of they junk. They throw junk and stuff and yeah. whatever's at hand. Good luck with that, attorneys. Uh, the Olympics in 2016 uh, will be in Rio. Excellent. Love Olympics. you got to love Brazil. They have pulled in the last couple weeks, I read, 50 tons of dead fish out of a lake or oh, river in the are area. Are we going to be serving fish? They've continued to wash up on the banks of the of a Rio de Janeiro oh, lake that no. is slated to hold the Olympic rowing competitions during the 2016 Games. Fish die-offs are free, a frequent occurrence in Rio's waterways, which are choked with raw sewage and garbage. Ugh. The latest incident affecting thousands of small fish began several days ago at the lake where an Olympic canoeing and rowing events are to be held. Uh, neighbors complain about the stench. Employees of the city's waste management company working to clear away dead fish. It's huh. kind of a bad situation. Yeah. Their water quality has become a contentious topic ahead of the Olympics. Authorities have pledged to clean up some of the waterways ahead of the Games, but now admit those promises won't be met. Sparkling, or the sailors' voice worries about possible health and safety threats posed by competing in yeah. sewage and garbage-filled waters. I was reading uh, someone was doing a test run. In where they plan on having the course, and he ran into a couch that was oh, floating geez. in the water. <laughs> Nothing will ruin your times faster than a couch. So your your rowing times. Well, I mean, this ah, oh, that's hard stuff. Yeah, because but it's also probably I mean, this is how we clean up pretty much every state or country that ends up getting the Olympics. Yes, there's always a major China. China thing. had similar problems yeah, with algae blooms that mm-hmm. were happening, and it was just kind of really a a toxic sort of. Wow. Area in the water. So Rio's having problems. I've seen pictures. It's really bad. Well, yeah. I, you know what? I'd start with the couches. Probably I'd start with the, the lawn chairs. The bigger pieces of garbage. The floating tire. I'd start yes. with stuff like that. Get those out of the way. Then move to the other organic materials. Just kind of uh, – I can see where people would be concerned about their health. By the way, that's a whole other type of Olympics though. Oh, I sure. mean, you, you gotta, you just really gotta love a row team that can maneuver such a course. It's amazing. They're not, they're not those, they're not designed to like maneuver. They're just supposed no. to go straight, straightforward. Yeah. But if you could get the row team around the couch, right, over the you know log, <laughs> you know the body, the dead body, whatever. Who who knows whatever. what's in the water? I'm not, yeah. I'm not casting aspersions. I'm right. not saying there are dead bodies, but there are. 50 million pounds of dead fish. <laughs> dead fish, and they're just floating around. Oh, can you imagine the stink? Holy cow. It's just gross. Yeah, okay. Also, uh, one final note. Ben & Jerry's, they're releasing uh, yeah. a burr, B-R-R-R, burr, burr. burrito. They're calling burr. it a burrito, a treat that includes two scoops of ice cream, chocolate cookie crumble, mm. fudge drizzle, all rolled up in a soft wa- waffle wrap. Mm, it sounds like heaven. So you get yourself an ice cream burrito. 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 The ito, I think in Spanish, means little. It's something that's little. Okay. It's a little burr. Okay. But that sounds like a big burr. It could be. We'll have to ask Jerem about that because Jerem, I think they speak Spanish. Jerem Jordan from BYU Sports Nation. One of them does. Spencer, I can't remember. We'll ask him because that's that's a big burr. Yes. Not a little burr. It better you don't want to have ice cream and then have just a small amount. You want to have a big amount of ice cream. You want enough just to numb the back of your head so you get that head headache, that cold headache. The burr headache. The, the brain freeze. The brain freeze. Right. I yeah. I understand that. Mmm. Sounds great. 
Good news, folks. Uh, interesting, interesting day, isn't it? We will uh, take a break. We're going to be bringing on our next guest to talk to us about um, what do you, how do you want to say this? I guess online safety. When you think about your kids online using all the technology, social media, your parenting style could actually be harming them. Maybe, maybe even making it worse. We're going to find out from uh, Pamela Wisniewski. She's going to be walking us through the ins, the outs about social media activity and your parenting style up here. Up next, right on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nowadays your kids don't even have to open the front door, right, to enter into the world of predators and vulnerability. Social media today and our online world can be a very dangerous place. But the question is, how much should parents intervene in their children's social media activity? Dr. Pamela Wisniewski is joining us. She uh, is a postdoctoral scholar and researcher at Penn State College of Information Sciences and Technology. She's also part of a team that is studying how different uh, parental mediation strategies can help keep teens safer online. Dr. Wisniewski, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me. We're honored to have you, and this is such a big deal. Uh, I'm I'm so interested in this, especially. I will be presenting just to a, a large uh, meeting about uh, social media and our our young adults and and the ways we can keep communication open there. So the the mere fact that you're on here. We're going to totally take advantage and pick your brain. But um, I also, it's a big deal because in your studies, you know, what are you finding? Are parents are, are parents getting too involved in controlling it? Or are, it seems like we wouldn't be in enough. I think what we see is, um, I, I kind of call it the Goldilocks problem, where yeah. parents may be being too restrictive or too lenient, um, where there's some parents who, for even older teens, say no cell phone, no Facebook, uh, absolutely no social media, where on the other hand, there's parents who um, kind of have a, a naive trust of saying, oh, you know, my teen's safe and and, and I trust him or her to, to do whatever they want online. Mm-hmm. And we found that this either too strict or too lenient parenting style is, is where uh, te- teens are kind of getting into more problems. Oh, interesting. And I love the Goldilocks. This one's too hard. This one's too soft. So it's it's really more about it's kind of being on the the extremes that might be harming the kids because you're either overdoing it, you're underdoing it, but we're not doing it effectively. Right. And really what we're trying to promote is a more balanced approach. Um, where we're not uh, advocating for fear-based parenting where parents are, are trying to, to – teach their kids that going online is bad, um, but we're also trying to advocate for more engaged parenting, where parents actually know what their teens are doing online. Heaven forbid, huh? You know, it's funny about <laughs> it is it seems like, Pam, that it, they they may have a, a uh, what's the word, a disadvantage as a parent because these kids may know so much more about being online than we do. So that might be right. running us and away. We have, um, we have found some research that suggests that there might be a digital gap between parents and teens 
and, and knowing how to use some of these online technologies. Hmm. And that's one of the things that we're actually um, further researching in, in some of our studies that we're conducting now. And is, is this all part of uh, this program at Penn State that you're talking about? Yes. Um, so the um, primary investigators on this project are Hangzhou, John, uh, Jack Carroll, Mary Beth Rawson, and uh, Daniel Perkins, who are all faculty members at Penn State. Um, they submitted a grant proposal a few years ago to the National Science Foundation, which was approved to study some of these issues of adolescence and online safety. Oh, wow. And so what else are you learning? We're learning the Goldilocks approach to parenting of uh, either being too hard or too lenient. That's not helping. You want to push a more balanced approach. What what else are you learning? Well, and and some of the relationships we found um, with the different parenting styles are very interesting. For instance, the teens who have parents who are more... um, restrictive who would take ways to directly intervene in what their teens are doing online or taking a more controlling approach, um, we find that these parents have teens who generally don't use social media as frequently. Um, And one of the unintended consequences of that, it may be that um, teens are not getting into as many problems, but they simultaneously might not be benefiting for some of the online engagement that they could be having. um, Because Teens are, are by nature very social, and that's one of the ways that many teens are relating to one another these days. Oh, interesting. Um, so one of the things that we want to emphasize to parents is being too restrictive may be protecting the teens, but may also be preventing them from some of the benefits that they could have from being online. Yeah, the social connectivity, just the information, being informed, being a part of the group, plus just the skills. I mean, it seems like the Internet's going to be around. I'm not sure what you're reading, but it sounds like it's here (laughs) to stay. And um, Correct. But we we try to control it. Right. And and that's one of the things. It's it's a beast that's so big that we're not going to be able to completely control it. So we need to find ways as parents to help teach teens how to navigate and deal with some of these problems on their own. Um, if they get a message from a stranger online, how to block it or um, how to say no to a friend who asks them for an inappropriate picture. Um, because if teens aren't encountering some of these lower-level risks, when they get older, they might be more exposed because they haven't learned how to deal with some of these challenges that they're inevitably going to come across somehow. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So instead of just saying no as the mentality, um, spend that same energy and time teaching them how to say no, uh, spend the same amount of time teaching them how to block or filter or, um, you know, when they see something that's inappropriate, how to report it into their parents, how to, you know, get rid of it, delete it, handle it. I mean, right, and so because teens are eventually going to become adults, and these are skills that they're going to need in in the real world. Hmm. And it seems like, in a way, it would be just better psychology to to enhance the skill set instead of just demonizing the tool set. Exactly, and that's really what we're trying to promote. When I first came to Penn State, um, I did a review of the current literature that's out there in the academic community. And one of the things that kind of struck me is that a lot of the research that's out there already takes more of a risk-adverse approach of, um, you know, risk exposure is our dependent variable that we want to reduce or minimize. 
Um, instead, we've taken a pr- approach that's um, actually we found um, from relevant literature in developmental psychology that's called resilience. Mm. Um, and the whole idea behind resilience is that teens are exposed to some level of risk. Um, and in developmental psychology, some of the risks that have been studied were sexual abuse or sexual promiscuity or alcoholism um, or drug abuse. Um, however, teens need to find a way to overcome these risks that they're exposed to um, in a way that they're not negatively impacted mm. by them. So one of the things that we did was take this framework, this resilience framework, and applied it to the new context of online risks. And we found, by and large, the resilience framework still applies, where for instance, one teen could be exposed to an explicitly um, uh, explicit content online, such as pornography, and may be able to ignore it and, and not be bothered by it, where another teen may see the same exact image, um, either become traumatized or uh, have it be a gateway to developing a porn addiction. Sure. And so one of the things we want to do is try to help understand some of the, the risk factors that go into well, what makes one teen be able to cope um, in a healthy way and, and move beyond this risk experience, and what are the factors that lead the teen down maybe a darker path? Oh, and that's powerful. And by being able to try to understand some of that, um, we're hoping to be able to develop some tools that can help encourage teens to, to go more on the positive path. Yeah, when, whenever I hear of resiliency, I kind of think of it as, um, you know, if if uh, you have to have a car that has shock absorbers and the ability to, you know, adapt to the situations and handle the speed bumps and, um, and, and it makes the car, you know, the more ability to absorb stuff, it, it makes it, you know, more able to not have to take the impact and take the impact. And yet the more rigid we are without the shock absorbers, all of a sudden – Every single bump makes it harder and harder until eventually just things are falling off the car and and it's tearing us apart. And you're saying let's create a mentality instead of just have everybody afraid. Let's create a mentality where resiliency, flexibility, adaptability, avoidance when you see it and you're there, but with skills and tools, you know, increases the the resiliency. I think that's right on. That's super powerful. Um, we're going to take yep. a break, though, Pam. I want to come back and have you teach us more about what are some of the skills you're starting to work on as far as resiliency goes. And really, how do we as parents take on this more resilient approach instead of just being so fearful? Um, it's really interesting stuff. Dr. Pamela uh, Wisniewski is joining us. We will take a break and uh, back with her right here on The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're honored to be talking to Dr. Pamela Wisniewski. Uh, she is from the website. She has her own website, pamspam.com. But she's uh, really a very um, noted uh, professor and academic uh, scholar. 
She currently is doing postdoctoral scholarship and research work at Penn State's College of Information Sciences and Technology. She's the member of a team that is studying how different parental mediation strategies can help keep teens safe online. She's been teaching us, instead of just creating this fearful, fear-based, worried approach to trying to communicate with your kids about the dangers of online things, maybe we need to be more resilient and teach them skills of communication and, and adaptation and adapting our behaviors and learning and growing instead of just trying to avoid all of this. Am I, am I accurate there, Dr. Pamela Wisniewski? I think so. Teach me more. Really? <laughs> well, um, one of the things that's important um, for parents is to be able to, to both take um, more proactive measures of helping uh, teach their teens about um, good choices to make online, but also taking some more reactive measures of, of knowing what their teens are doing online and talking to them about it. For instance, if a teen girl posts a picture of herself in a bikini that's too revealing, um, the parent actually knowing that that occurred and talking to the teen about it, um, and, and maybe the teen um, afterwards may think, oh, you know, maybe I should take that picture down. Mm. But really helping make uh, helping teens make these better choices instead of directly trying to make those choices for the teen. Yeah. Well, I love um, the idea really that you're doing team. that. You should be monitoring, right? That's That seems like a no-brainer, but right. sometimes it's it's easy to just, oh, let them go. <laughs> well, and, and I think it's just um, parents are overwhelmed because there's so many new platforms for social media that teens are that are teens are um, plugged into, and it would be a full time job to monitor twenty four seven what a teen's doing. So, in the future, we would like to be able to develop tools that help parents manage some of the monitoring that they need to do. Um, but one of the things that we've noticed is that a lot of parental monitoring tools really emphasize the more restrictive parenting approaches of trying to block certain websites or mm. limit the amount of time teens are online. And while there's a place for that, we think that there's opportunities to, to build new tools that help engage parents in a conversation with their teens. Yeah. On, oh, um, who are you talking to through social media? And what are some of the things you talk about? Um, what are some of the challenges or that, or some of the, the problems that you might have encountered? Having some of those open conversations. Um, right now I'm in the process of analyzing some new data that I have um, from a diary study where we had parents and teens report on the different types of risk events that teens experienced over the course of two months um, on a weekly basis. We had them do these diary reports. And one of the things that I'm finding is that a lot of times teens aren't opening up to their parents about some of the things that they've encountered online because of the fear of getting punished. Um, and, and that's really um, mis un unfortunate because this is an opportunity for, for parents to get more engaged and to, to help their teens yeah. with some of the things that they're dealing with. Um, but instead, teens are kind of closing off their parents because they know that, well, if, if I tell my mom that this boy just sent me, you know, an inappropriate picture of himself, 
um, then she's going to take away my cell phone. Oh, yeah. Um, even though that it wasn't the teen's fault that she received maybe an inappropriate picture, um, a lot of parents are, are taking kind of a knee-jerk reaction and and punishing their teens for, for things that maybe it wasn't necessarily their fault that it occurred. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Then, then they'll go underground, right? So if I can't talk about it you know, in the daylight with you, then I'm going to start hiding it. And once they get used to hiding stuff, that's where we're going to have problems. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's where the high-risk situations occur, where teens don't let their parents know what they're doing online. And um, the, the research that you were uh, referencing before, one of the other things that we found from the teen perspective is that there seems to be this risk escalation process where teens may first get online and disclose some basic information about themselves, such as using their real name on Facebook. Um, and then eventually they make more self-sensitive uh, disclosures, such as sharing pictures or videos of themselves. Um, but then, you know, if, if a teen is doing this unmediated, um, they may get into more risky situations because by nature teens are more risk-seeking. Yeah. Um, and if they haven't experienced any problems or, or their parent has, hasn't kind of talk to them about what they're doing or, or, or when it's kind of getting to that borderline risk, um, then they might get into riskier situations where they meet a stranger that they met online um, in real life. Oh, and, and those are the things that we want to, to make sure parents are safeguarding their teens against. Well, and, and really as part of that, you, you, so you don't even need to just go find the one problem. You almost need to be able to communicate and connect on all their positive stuff they're sending out as well. Like, hey, I really like that you forwarded that uh, that um, email or that uh, advertisement or that uh, article around um, bullying. I mean, so if you find all of a sudden your your kid did something kind of noble and is is perpetuating a good story about don't be a bully online, you could also focus on the positives um, and then, you know, the one in whatever the numbers are, when you find something that's inappropriate, you can deal with that as well. It's You just got to be involved. Exactly. And, and that's really the key is, is parents knowing what's going on. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I found in, in this diary study I was talking about is that um, the good news is that for, for some of the really high-risk um, situations where you know, a, a teen sent a naked picture of herself to a boy, and then the boy shared that with the entire school, oh, and the yeah. girl proceeded to get cyberbullied. Um, the good thing is that the parent has some clue of what's happening, but then the bad news is that the teen doesn't always tell the parent exactly what happened, mm. and so the parent needs to know to probe a little bit more. Like, for instance, um, one parent uh, reported that um, that her daughter sent a fake naked picture of herself to a boy um, where the teen indicated that maybe it was actually a picture of herself. Um, and so the teens are really trying to communicate with their parents some, but they may have some level of embarrassment or yeah. fear that they're going to get punished. Um, and, and for instance, in a case like this, if a parent, you know, really shuts down on the teen um, and just punishes him or her in a situation like this, then it's really missing an opportunity to, to help that teen and, and really trying to look at some of the underlying issues that teen may have, such as low self-esteem or mm. um, a problem fitting in at school. Because a lot of times, um, it's not a technology problem. The same risk factors that go into a teen smoking or drinking or doing other things related to peer pressure 
maybe the reason they're getting yeah. involved in problems online uh. and really trying to under, understand that, you know, knowing that your team is a little bit more lonely and maybe more susceptible to some of these risks. It matters. It does matter. And the relationship matters. Oh, it really is such great information. Again, we're talking with uh, Dr. Pamela Wisniewski from Penn State. And uh, Dr. Pamela, we appreciate you. That is it's such great insight. And we're going to have you back again because I I could pick your brain for hours. And I think most parents could too as well. And you give such great ideas and tools. Go check out our website though, pamspam.com. Pamspam.com to get more information on that. And parents, it's going to come back to the relationship, isn't it? It always does. Uh, that's the best way to combat technology problems or potential problems is having a relationship with your kids first and knowing uh, how to talk and push back a little bit without having them run away. We'll take a break, folks, and when we come back, uh, talk to the guys down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on with them. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, here it goes. Put that up just a little bit. When you hear this song, don't you just think of two awesome guys? Spencer and Jerem. Hey, guys from Sports Nation, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you like this song choice? Jerem does. No. I've lost my voice. Spencer's <laughs> lost his voice. He's sick. Spencer lost your voice? I have lost my voice. Were you like singing this song last it. night? No. Here's the thing. I wish I could sing that Frozen song right now, but you I can't. You probably shouldn't be talking. Well, I have to because we have a show, well, and make... I'm supposed to call a softball game tonight. Oh, you're dead. If you need me to call <laughs> in it. trouble, man. I'm warming up your in the help. Pen, Yeah, dude. you better warm up. I need your help. Yeah, you don't want me calling softball. Hey, do you have do you have remedies, dude? I Seriously. do. What's, uh, what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Hot water, okay, and a cold diet coke. <laughs> Mix them, three to one. Diet coke this to hot water. By. <laughs> no, so you know what, honey, hot water, honey and lemon, honey and lemon in water, honey and lemon, and, and water. you kind of you make a little honey lemon water tea, okay, and okay. then I like to just cough as hard as I can till it hurts. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Goodness. My, I'm not that kind of doctor, guys. My uh, my mom has been saying for a long time, hey, your grandma says gargle salt water. And I'm like, hmm. it tastes terrible. It does. That's but what they used to do. I'd rather gargle Listerine. No, don't do that. That would... That no, would... no, that's... It tastes good after. You know what? Heat up some salt? Listerine and Heat just drink it. Listerine. <laughs> just drink it. There will be some sort then, of chemical reaction and, then, uh, and an explosion it, will happen. Uh, that's right. You start I'm sorry you're sick. That's not good. It's, well, here, it's all the, the talking. Thing. Like I don't I don't feel terrible. I feel bad, but not terrible. But my voice sounds like death. You know, just looking at you on the video, you look horrible, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. I don't hey, see it's, it's, you. you use your voice too much, don't you? Uh, probably. You got to stay off your voice. Yeah. Um, uh, I was thinking about you guys the other day. Do you remember, Jerem? You, you got to help me with this. Do you remember when Spencer, because Spencer can't talk. Do you remember when he was he did the 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 four forty thing and he had all of these the reasons. Three forty thing. I remember that. Yeah, the five four four four. Yeah, sorry, I remember that too. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> the dream. That was a great dream. But do you remember um, when he did it? He, he was running uphill. 
basically. Uh, there was little um, aeration clods of dirt everywhere. I that, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and the, the track wasn't good. So here's the deal. I don't know if you heard the story about what's going on with the Olympic site in um, in Rio de Janeiro. De Janeiro? Is that how you say it? Rio de Janeiro. Is that how you say it? That's the native pronunciation. Okay, so here's the deal. They have pulled out of the, a lake that is near uh, where they're going to be racing the Olympics in 2016. They've pulled out literally, I guess it's like 50 million tons of fish. What? Pounds of fish. Hmm. Dead fish dying in the oh. lake. Dead fish dying in the lake because there's so much human waste being thrown into the lake. And it's hard. It's hard to do the rowing uh the rowing events because you have to kind of row through a couch and a floating lawn chair. <laughs> so, I don't want to laugh, but it's true. It's true. But so what I'm but they're cleaning it up. So what I'm wondering is, um, Spencer, you're going to need. You can speak for him, Jerem. Okay. What do you think? Uh, what do you think Spencer would say to the Olympic athletes that need to run on not or not run, but do their activities in the lake that's not ideal? You read my mind, Jerem. Tell him what I think. What would what would he say? Use think like think like Spencer. Man, the world is so bright and cheery. Isn't right it now. amazing? It's so crazy. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to happiness. I hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it, it, it would say, it, listen, use use those as a means of uh, propelling yourself to victory. Like literally, push the oar off that couch and raise yourself up. Yeah. Lift yeah. thine self up, light the fire within, mm. rise up. Mm-hmm. Any other motivational phrase you can pull you can from do a cheesy it. poster. The power is in you. You can do it. And then you, yes, and then you are win you a gold my, in Rio. Are you saying that my mind is a motivational cheesy poster? Yes. I think that maybe you were consulted for some of those posters in doctor's offices that are like, yeah, the you can do it. Wow. And, the right. and that's made money in the 90s. Yeah. No, in the 90s it was huge. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I don't know what he's thinking. Yeah, you do. That's the problem. You just nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it. But it's not cheesy. He just, yeah, it's not cheesy. You, but you hit it perfectly, Jeremy. Just stick that oar and get right some in between the, couch. the pillow cushions. Yeah, and just get some grip mm. and just use that obstacle to push you further ahead. I want to go to the the Olympics in Rio. It's going to be. I beautiful. went on my mission to Brazil, so I want to go to Rio because BYU is going to have. Some reps there on the volleyball team, it would seem. At least one. Taylor Sanders should be on that team. How cool is that? You got to go. Just go. I'm sure BYU Broadcasting will pay. Just say, look, I'm going to represent BYUB. Yeah. I Find something to do, Jeremy. We we had about 10 people from Was that uh, Grandpa? I just heard Grandpa say something. Uh, (laughs) What did you say, Jeremy? I remember. (laughs) We had about 10 people go to Sochi and work uh, on the international feed. I, uh, that work in this building. I, I'm probably going to go. I'm just throwing that out there right now. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask Don if he'll pay for me to go. Don will let you. Yeah. Don, I mean, hey, Don Sheila line. You should ask him about that. By Don the way. Sheila she, line. Sheila line. No, he's going to get mad. He's, he doesn't come it's over a, and get it's mad. It's a funny story. Hey, um, what's going on on your show today with the, the man who can't speak? Uh, You're going to carry it, Jerem. Today we're going to talk about Division One basketball transfer rules and how they're a little weird. So an article came out in the Salt Lake Tribune yesterday about Isaac Nielsen, who's transferring. Um, he was pretty shocked. It, he he made it sound like he got kind of got pushed out. That's one side of the story. Yeah. We're going to talk about maybe what Dave Rose has to manage and why or why not it's okay to maybe do this in some situations, maybe not. 
um, and and how the Division One transfer rule should be. Because Isaac Nielsen, if he goes to a four-year school, he has to sit out. Why can't he just play? We're going to discuss that. That's cool. Plus, another picture has surfaced from Mo Longy, BYU's six foot eight, four hundred twenty mm-hmm. pound uh, missionary. Yeah, we'll show you that and talk about that. Oh, that's and cool. why he's the Polynesian Hagrid. Uh, we'll also talk to Cole Ogden of the golf team and baseball coach Mike Littlewood, fresh off of a win against Utah last night. Seven this is six. a good show. Yeah, you're going to have a good show, and you're going to have to do all the lifting, Jerem. And Spencer's just going to push off like, that couch hard. Push off for the, the couch. first time for the first time in the history of BYU Sports Nation. Jerem will have to work. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Dude, one, one thing about your voice, though, Spencer, it is it's sultry. It's oh yeah, oh, yeah save baby. it. That's good. That's good. Save hey, it. Hey, guys, have a great show. Go knock them dead, Jerem. We will. But don't knock me. Spencer dead. Come on. And Spence, you just you just muddle through it. Just lay low. Lay low. All you don't right. have to talk. Just Stick smile. Stick it, AC. My voice is on the verge of cracking like every point five seconds. So that's why I wouldn't talk. Just go get some honey okay. and some lemon and, and then boil NyQuil. All right. Boil NyQuil. <laughs> that's, I'm just between, adding Between heating up Listerine and boiling NyQuil, yeah. I am... A dead man. And I think if you do it in a metal container, it works even better. <laughs> Just see how that goes. Your doctor's helping you. Thanks, guys. Have a great show. Goodbye, Dr. Matt. Goodbye, Austin. If I see you again. I will. If not, I will be there mourning your loss. <laughs> okay. I'll be there. I'll be there. That's how you lose your voice, Jerem. Knock it off. Go do <laughs> your show. See you guys. Be good. Bye. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. You lose your voice, you're done. I've learned to I, – I have actually uh, – I can – speak at five different tonal levels and qualities, just all to save my voice. One of the things I wanted to do, um, I wanted to check in on James. Some of you haven't heard, but throughout the day, uh, James, he's, he's been in the shower. We, we call him and we talk to him and let's just let's listen. Let's get James, get, let's get James on the phone. Yeah, I'm oh. here. You're still showering. Yeah. What's with the shower? Um, just... Still getting ready. Oh, James, you're not using the hair dryer, are you? No, yes. you don't. Use, James, you don't use the hair dryer in the shower. No, Tur- but uh, but I do. Okay. Okay. You you don't have any hair. What are you drying? You with? you shave your you almost shave your it's, head. It's, it's a buzz. hair it's a hair dryer. Okay, but I use it to condition my scalp. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Um, but don't do it in the shower. And my condolences to your uh, future bride. That will not be able to marry you because you're using a hairdryer in the shower. Thank you, James. Now, uh, interesting thing, uh, just that was a dramatization because James is actually not in the shower. Uh, he His microphone just makes a hissing sound that sounds like he's in the shower. It's, it's going to be fixed tomorrow. Here's the deal, folks. As we always uh, like to do on the show, we always want to talk about heroes. And to wrap up the show today, I wanted to get and do a little hero tribute. Uh, Boston Marathon was, I believe, yesterday. Is that amazing? No, two days ago. Um, and But the last finisher of the Boston Marathon finished, I think, yesterday at about 5 in the morning. Okay, His name is Michael Melamed, 39-year-old man from Venezuela. He ran the Boston Marathon despite suffering from a form of muscular dystrophy. It took him 20 hours, folks, 20 hours to cross the finish line, and uh, he did it. And he ran the complete marathon in the 20-hour period. Interesting thing about it, he also had a team around him. Now, remember, that I don't know if you heard, but the marathon had wind, rained. It was really cold. It was a really hard day for most of the runners. But he was helped, Melamed was, was helped by a group of volunteer supporters 
from his um, home country. But the, the name of the foundation is called Vamos, which in Spanish means we are going. It's the B verb of we are going, we're doing, we're going. And um, this group helped him run step by step by step, 26.2 miles to make this dream of um, of Michael come true. But along the way, folks, he also um, is uh, he's a hero in Venezuela and um, back home. He, he's, he's also in his history climbed Venezuela's tallest mountain, which is Pico Bolivar in 2006. But we're holding him up as a hero. And uh, one of the heroes just teaching us that your dreams are never too big. You can uh, always formulate a team, get people to help and make dreams uh, happen. We also wanted to hold out and, and also hold up as our heroes from the Boston uh, Marathon as well. Um, just some incredible people. And you may have heard of Rebecca Gregory DiMartino, who wasn't able to run the whole race uh, Monday, but she crossed uh, the finish line um, because she was one of the the, uh, the victims of the the bombing incident and had to have her leg amputated. Um, and since then, she just she ran 3.2 miles um, to finish the marathon that she didn't get to finish in the original race. Anyway, halfway through, interestingly, her she was running on a blade. As you've seen that they can do once they've uh, lost um, a limb, she ran on the blade and her blade hit a pothole. She almost fell, twisted her knee, so she had to run on a on a twisted knee, basically. But she did it all as a symbol, and that's why we're making her the hero because she's reclaiming her life, folks. So, heroes, thanks for doing it, uh, all of you. Uh, Rebecca Gregory DiMartino. We honor you. We also honor you, Michael Melamed, and all of those that make those dreams take uh, take place. We couldn't do it without each other, folks. The world is good, and the goal of this show is to help you see the good in the world. We'll be back tomorrow. More tools to help you find the good right here on The Matt Townsend Show.